Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. What is up, Gypsy Gang? We are back for another episode of the Gypsy Tales podcast and frothing on this one. We are chatting today to the CEO of one of the most exciting companies uh, in motorcycling at the moment, Anton Wass. CEO of the Stark Future Company. Uh, I have been following this project pretty closely. It uh, started with a phone call from Josh Hill uh, that was very vague when the bike was still under uh, an embargo. He said there's something really cool coming. Um, the guys then reached out to me. We had a little bit of a comp- uh, conversation before the launch. Uh, and then obviously the launch was insane. Kind of just been following it along ever since. Uh, this is our first podcast in our new Gypsy Tales Europe studio. Uh, so yeah, look forward to some pretty awesome content uh, to be coming out of the Netherlands. Uh, So Anton actually flew from Spain uh, to the Netherlands to do this podcast. So uh, I really enjoyed it. I learned a lot, probably a couple of extra questions I wish that I asked. Uh, But yeah, overall, super, super stoked uh, to be talking to Anton. Before we get into the podcast, though, as always, just a quick word from our epic sponsors to keep the lights on. And today I'm pleased to announce... Uh, that Manscaped has launched their ultra premium collection. Believe it or not, it's for your not-so-private parts. I'm talking about a leveled-up hygiene routine with your favorite manly scent, this all-in-one skin and hair care kit for the everyday man, like myself, like you guys out there, uh, and covers you from head to toe, literally. Manscaped is trusted below the waist. Now trust them with the rest. Join the 4 million men worldwide who trust Manscaped by going to manscaped.com. For 20% off plus free shipping with the code gypsy gang uh look i need this to be honest uh the hair is getting pretty wild these days and until bali i never really had a proper hair care routine I had some help with hair care over there which was quite nice uh and just i think i'm a changed man i think i'm going to be doing the conditioner thing from now on uh yeah pretty hard with the with the long lock sometimes but now the guys at manscaped have just made it so easy to make this happen uh you guys can also get their performance package that's what i use when it comes to the below the waist stuff uh their new lawnmower 4.0 is for that precise trim below the waist with their advanced skin safe technology to reduce cuts and nicks to your most delicate areas Uh, but now you can add the ultra premium collection to this uh this kit includes manscaped premium deodorant hydrating body moisturizer body wash two-in-one shampoo and conditioner uh, and as always a little free gift a uh, three-pack set of lip balm that is made up of ingredients such as vitamin e peppermint eucalyptus oil to keep those chappers feeling moist all this at manscaped.com and again 20 percent and free shipping when you use the code gypsy gang at checkout 
Uh, we're also brought to you by the guys at Crush Oz. You can head to crushoz.com.au. The best bike wash in the game. You've just kept your body clean with Manscaped. Now it's time to keep your bike clean with the guys at Crush Oz. Uh, if you're new to that brand and you haven't already jumped on board, the performance bucket, the bike care kit, that's probably your one-stop shop just to get you in, get you in the program uh, and see what you've been missing out on all these years. Once again, at crushoz.com. We're also brought to you by the guys at MX Store. You can head to mxstore.com.au as always for the largest range of dirt bike parts and accessories. And if you order for 2 p.m., you will get same day shipping. Uh, we're also brought to you by the guys at antigravitybatteries.com. Uh, these guys make the best lithium batteries for your dirt bike, for cars, jet skis, the whole deal. Uh, these guys do everything. They're trusted by race teams all over the world, most notably Star Yamaha, Pro Circuit, Factory Kawasaki. Uh, these guys hook it up. We've got one in my 350. Uh, I'll be putting one in my Think bike. Uh, I'll be putting them in my new truck when I get it. Uh, and also the USB chargers are pretty massive. Got one of them in, in my bag at all times. Also by the guys at Fist, fisthandware.com and the legends at Rival Ink Design Co. You can head to rivalinkdesignco.com uh, to peep what they got going on. They are the leaders in the graphic industry worldwide. So thank you very much. Enjoy this podcast. Gotcha, mate. Fantastic. Hey, we're, what's up? We're doing it. The first Euro Gypsy Tales, mate. But Anton, welcome. Uh, I, uh, I'm definitely stoked to, to have you on the podcast. Well, thank you for having me. Really nice to be here. Yeah, so uh, you noted that uh, very different attire, uh, but I guess at our core, uh, both motocross and motorcycle enthusiasts. And uh, yeah, I'm, I'm super interested to get... I guess like broad overview of the Stark project and then also kind of meta with it as well because there's been just some stuff in like the technical videos uh, that I've seen that are, are really interesting. I think not even just from like an electric standpoint. I just think there's some overall extremely interesting tech that's going into these uh, bikes that could be adapted to any motorcycle, not not just electric. So, I, uh, yeah, I'm extremely excited that we're that we're doing this. Well, I'm uh, really glad to hear so, and uh, look forward to tell you a bit more. So, uh, I guess broad. Uh, maybe should we just fully start at the top of even some background um, of I guess your background in motorcycling maybe because i think to a lot of people i mean to me i got the call from josh hill uh while the bike was still under nda uh and he didn't really give too many details other than we're not going to need gas anymore and i was like damn all right that's pretty big <laughs> claim coming from hill you know uh and then a couple weeks later we got on a phone call and then i think it was a few days later the bike came out but i mean before that it's like this thing's just like mum's the word no one knows about it so you've kind of you're now i would say one of the more prominent figures in the industry in terms of a somebody that's like headlining a manufacturer we don't really get to see the face of a company uh in motorcycling these days so yeah it's kind of just 
from not knowing who you are to being one of the more interesting people uh, in the industry. So I guess maybe we should even just get a little bit of context as to how you kind of got to this well, position. Well, I, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, the bike might be interesting. I don't know if I'm so interesting, but uh, thank you very much. I mean, um, having those words from Josh is so nice. I mean, uh, that's our ambition to, uh, to replace gas with electric and to show that electric technology is superior to gas. So to have his impression after coming riding the bike and saying something like that is just fantastic. It's a big, uh, you know, congratulations to the team that has worked so, so hard behind it to make it happen. But I mean, okay, a bit of my background. Is that what you uh, want to know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay, so I mean, I, I grew up in the countryside of Sweden, uh, surrounded by farms. And uh, there you can uh, either bicycle or uh, ride a motocross or horses so my family had horses but that was not really my interest so i started riding motocross when i was fairly young i had a yamaha 80cc with a steel yeah. tank that's yeah. uh, i had to get a bit older bike it was always problems never really worked but it was still fun when it worked <laughs> and uh, then i had a few different bikes and uh, yeah just always been riding and enjoying it and uh, I didn't really have any clear path in life, you know, what to do. So uh, the only interest I had was motorcycles. So I decided to become a motorcycle mechanic. And uh, that's that's what I did. So um, uh, when studying to become a motorcycle mechanic, I uh, I met uh, Stefan, uh, who had created a company selling motorcycle parts and, and stuff online, basically. And I started working with him. and. Uh, uh, then he started to create 24MX, which is uh, the world's largest online motor motocross store. And uh, uh, he brought in uh, Daniel. And uh, yeah, we built uh, the company from uh, nothing. Uh, basically, you know, three guys in a, almost like a garage uh, to yeah. uh, the world's largest online motocross store. And uh, of course, you know, it was a huge amount of, you know, very good people making sure that happened and uh, now it's a company with 400 employees and 150 million euro in sales and that's ba basically my background um, you know, both from interest and also business perspective but I decided a few years ago I wanted to do something new and uh, I spent all my life trying to just sell as much stuff as possible and you know, I'm always out in nature either riding enduro, mountain biking, running, whatever and I think the planet we have is amazing and to just see how we're destroying it every single day you know, it doesn't feel right. And I've been spending all my efforts just trying to sell more shit. Yeah. Not necessarily shit, but you know, just, yeah. you know, this commercial spiral that is constantly destroying the, the planet. And I felt that, you know, if, if you're going to spend all your energy doing something, why not trying to do something good instead? Yeah. And uh, of course, it also has to be motivating. So uh, in the end, I decided I wanted to build electric motorcycles to try to transform the motorcycle industry to sustainability. Uh, focusing on CO2 and plastic reduction. So uh, yeah, that's that's a background I I wanted to do together with a partner. So um, I I found uh, Paul, who is our CTO and my co-founder, who has the experience of developing bikes from the ground up. And yeah. uh, we created a company together. And I mean, now it's uh, 50 people. I think 40 of those are engineers, basically. So it's an engineering company yeah. at the moment. Yeah that has uh, developed this bike from, from the ground up. And uh, I mean, it was clear, like when we started the company, we said, let's only do this if we believe we can build an electric motocross bike that can outperform every gas bike in the market. Yeah. Because the ambition here is to 
transition the motorcycle industry into sustainability and I don't think that's going to happen if you sell a compromise. If you develop a product that's you know, a little bit heavier, uh, double the price, slower, uh, ugly, I mean, that's not going to work. If you want to transform the industry, you need to build a sustainable product that's better in every single aspect. Yeah. So that's the challenge and that, that is our goal. And we, after our first analyze, we came to the conclusion it should be possible. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I think we have done that now. But it was much harder than we expected. And that's, I think that's always the case. Yeah, 100%. <laughs> yeah, so I guess with uh, to, to look at the, the Tesla model, I mean, that was definitely, uh, I guess, something that, that Tesla was founded on in a sense is it's like, okay, let's build a product that's better and then it will just kind of force people because for whatever reason uh, with human nature, it's sort of like, let's just deny the problem or let's just kind of skirt our way around the problems of uh, whether it's global warming or just waste in, in general. Um, and, you know, let's keep burning fossil fuels while they're there. So it's almost like human nature is going to prevent us from ever doing the right thing uh beforehand uh so it's like this almost is a way of kind of backdooring the sustainability question because it seems like in human nature that's the only way you can actually do it yeah and i mean i think that makes sense i'm the same i'm not uh, i mean you always want to take the easier out and you want the nicest experience you want to go on the nicest trips you want to buy the nicest stuff whatever so I think the, the only way to really transition to sustainability is building better sustainable products. Um, yeah. You know, it cannot be a compromise. That's not what we want. So, so. with, uh, to, to go back to your, uh, I guess the origin, uh, so you're pretty much like out of school, like what level of schooling did you kind of go through? Like, I guess what's the, because there, there has to be, I guess, an academic mindset here in terms of just wanting to build something and to, there's a f- certain founder mindset that you need to have and i guess uh the mx24 thing like there's a lot to learn through i mean it's not like you have to go to business school i didn't go to any kind of university but there's obviously been some kind of like there's a founder mindset or like an academic kind of mindset that you've started with and, and carried through so it's like you went to you went to school and then you did the mechanics apprenticeship and then MX24 or I guess how did it all kind of flow together? Yeah, I mean, uh, I think I was 17 when uh, we started 24MX. So okay, I was still in school actually. So I was, well, I think officially I was having, uh, what's it called? Uh, when you're working, but you're not working. But I, I was working four yeah, days a week. Yeah, and I, yeah. I was in I was in school one day a week. So for my last year, so I was, well, I never really spent time in school. I think school can be good, but for me, I learned by doing. And uh, yeah, uh, I mean, I had, I learned so much from Daniel and Stefan because they had so much more experience. I think they were, maybe 35 at that point and had, you know, vast experience of, uh, you know, managing companies and creating other companies yeah. and so on. So I learned a massive amount of, you know, how to, how to build a company basically from them. And they let me, uh, they gave me so much responsibility from the start. So, I mean, very much thanks to them. That's also why I, I think could learn quite quickly. So, I mean, I, yeah. I could be, a, I was a manager. I remember when I was 
I was mainly managing our assortment and the commercial aspects, like how to how we sold products and the products that we, you know, which brands we're working with, setting up those agreements, etc. So I was when I was twenty, I was always doing business with sixty-year-old uh, sales yeah. managers and uh, company owners, and you know, <laughs> coming as a twenty-year-old, it, it takes a while to get respected, of course. But so I was very early on, you know, working. I think that's really what taught me how to build a company and so on. Then. Uh, <clears throat> Actually, Daniel and Stefan as well, they sent me to a business school. So I was studying in the evening because I think they, you know, saw that I, I was really pushing hard and they wanted to help me develop more. So yeah. they uh, paid for something like an MBA, something like this. Uh, so uh, that's, uh, so I have that as well. But I think I'm not a university guy. I have some points, but. Uh, it's basically yeah. through building twin frameworks is how I learned how to build a company. Yeah, yeah, and I mean that's uh, I guess for most people um, that are you know end up being super successful. That's kind of a story that that you'll hear more often than not is that there was just like this kind of trial by fire. Um, uh, my buddy Sam says, "Bite off more than you can chew and chew like fuck," and uh, that's sort of like the the business <laughs> yeah. ethos that that he's always had. Yeah. Um, and you know, I think you'll find that's like exactly a lot of people. <laughs> yeah, they kind of have that that sort of. Uh, strategy in place but then over time you end up becoming a legitimate businessman in that sense you know <clears throat> yeah i mean as long as you don't give up i mean you never fail until you give up so as long as you keep on going you will succeed so yeah i think that's the mentality it takes and then you, you find your way so and so yeah, what like early early days like what did you bring what did you feel like you brought to the table when you're dealing with these guys that are like a lot older and a lot more experienced in business uh, i mean everyone is so shaped you know the, the mindset of most people i think is like really in a box like yeah and for me i had no limitation because no one told me the barrier so i yeah. mean i several times you know let's let's make this the best selling bag in the world you know from nothing and we did that within you know that category or that's i mean we had a tent which is one of those things as people in europe have seen front of tent which is we we became the third biggest seller in the world of canopy tents uh yeah. so the biggest the two biggest were Walmart and China Mobile. And then number three in the world was 20 Framex, you know, from the motocross industry. Wow. That's just ridiculous. <laughs> and, and, you know, how did we do that? It was, we wanted to make the motocross tracks look like 20 Framex tracks. This was the idea behind it. And how do we do that? I mean, you can pay a ridiculous amount of sponsoring, but that's not a sustainable business model. And then yeah. we saw that people like to use these tents. And I remember it was Daniel's idea to bring them in from the start. And the first year we sold 1,200 tents. And that was, you know, quite cool because, you know, every tent is nine square meters and it's basically just a huge marketing banner. You yeah. know? So, so yeah. it looks so 1,200 of those. Wow. And then I remember saying that next year we're going to sell 10,000. And everyone was like, you're an idiot. That's never going to happen. But that's when you like, if you set a hard target, then you need to look at how do you achieve that? So, okay, if we're going to sell 10,000, sold 1,200 now, uh, okay, we need to have a better offer. We need a better price to make it more interesting to increase the commercial. Yeah. Uh, what is the right price? And then you, you know, uh, working with like testing pricing campaigns for such a long time, you kind of get a feeling for, 
you know how it, how it's gonna hit you know the price yeah. of the stasity model and okay if we have that volume how much can we reduce the cost so yeah trying to find the balance here and then i remember that second year we sold 9500 tents so we didn't reach a target but we're pretty close <laughs> yeah we yeah brought it up like every, every every year just increasing the target i think the best year we sold almost a hundred thousand tents wow and so the, <laughs> that's like nine hundred thousand square meters of uh, marketing <laughs> and we actually that's it was insane. profitable <clears throat> yeah so it was not a marketing cost it was a profitable business by itself that was pretty cool uh, but it was you you know it's a team effort of course so we created you know how are we going to launch this you know like the launch campaign with hundreds of activities and all of that but it's very much like if you set a target and if you're then you need to like really dig down into each step of the process how are you going to achieve that i mean same i mean the tent is very simple in comparison to building a new electric motocross yeah. but it's the same thing okay if we yeah. want to become the industry leader in motocross but we're also going to be electric how are we going to do that well first of all we need to develop a better product in which way does it have to be better well we need more power it needs to be lighter easier to ride less maintenance and we also want to make it more beautiful and you know a few other aspects and okay so then you look into how can you achieve that how do you achieve the low weight how do you achieve the power the range uh how do you find the right ergonomics so uh yeah i mean you, if, as long as you just like that's the same whatever you do if you just break it down everything is easy you know yeah okay for step one i need to call this guy okay <laughs> that's not difficult yeah. and then step two yeah. <laughs> can i convince him to to do this well, okay that's yeah, sometimes possible if that's not possible you have to call the next guy <clears throat> yeah that, so, it's uh, it's yeah. it's so it's so cool like the i could tell i guess just from initially before i spoke to i, th- I can't remember if i spoke to you guys first or saw the video but Maybe I spoke to Ben and then I spoke to you guys after. Um, but I just, I remember seeing the video and being like, fuck, they get it. Like, this is a real company. This is a real launch. This isn't, it, it, the the Stark launch to me didn't feel like something that come from within this industry. It felt like something that come from outside of our industry uh, and was done on a, I, it's hard it's hard to say like more legitimate in a way because i mean but that's sort of just how it felt in a way um because like you said the box like a lot of people in this industry are in a box and you know you'll see these like incremental gains year on year to motorcycles there's not a lot of risk there's not a lot of like crazy progression it's sort of just a very you know like just every year it's just like these tiny little kind of one percenters the marketing doesn't change the messaging does like nothing kind of changed so i guess hearing this story from you and like that's why i'm interested in a little bit of the background because for me in terms of I guess if I have to think about the the kind of person or people that would be behind a branch that launched a brand that launched in the way that you guys did, I I see a lot of this kind of like outside the box thinking and and just uh, a completely different approach to sort of what we've seen. And I guess when you were in MX24 and that process of of learning, were you looking at the industry? And kind of seeing these kind of holes in the industry where it was like, man, I, I really feel like I could do this just better across the board. 
Yeah, I mean, if you look at every, I mean, whatever you look at, you can always find ways to make it better. That's normally not so difficult. So if you say, you know, you take a specific category, I mean, now we're very focused on sales, but if you, uh, if for instance, we had one of these things was, okay, so we're selling motocross gear. How do we make people buy motocross gear from us instead of someone else? Okay, that's an important question. Well, I mean, one of the things to make it more likely is if they have all their gear inside a 20FMX gear bag, you know, next time they need to buy something, they should at least have us yeah. as one of the options on, on their mind. So let's yeah. make the best gear bag at, you know, a very, uh, like, a good price. Uh, and so we created the best-selling gear bag in the world for motocross. Uh, but it's, you know, 20FMX and Stark is very different from that, where, like, 20FMX is very much volume-driven and very much yeah. price-driven, versus with, you know, yeah. Stark is... Also, it's a nicer challenge to try to be more focused on technology and making a more premium product. Uh, it's yeah, it's a different type of challenge, and I think for me, it's more inspiring. Um, yeah, but it was a, a great journey and a learning experience to do twenty frameworks for sure. So, did you just have, I guess, growing up? Did you have a natural propensity towards wanting to build and engineer things? Like, was that sort of something that? Because that's a pretty hard itch to scratch when you're a kid and you don't have capital or resources to kind of build things. But I mean, I'm sure that, oh, or maybe there is like this, I guess, just like a feeling for a long time to want to build something. Because I mean, I know for, from my personal experience, like my career before the podcast was making videos for other companies and it was cool. And I did some amazing stuff and I did like, like crazy things that you could never do otherwise. But there is such a greater sense of fulfillment in like building my own brand and having my own conversations and my own, like everything in this process, like I get to kind of own, I feel like I'm actually building something uh, more tangible for me. So I guess, is it, is that something that has kind of always uh, been something inside you to sort of want to put something out into the world that's of your own making in a way? Yeah, I mean, I, I could never afford the things I wanted as a child, you know, so I always, I wanted a motocross and I was begging for so many years. And then when yeah. I got one, you know, <laughs> it was so old, <laughs> it didn't work, <laughs> but, you know, it's still, still fun. Uh, so I, I've, I've probably felt that you know, I couldn't do everything that I, I wanted to do, but yeah, I've been rebuilding bikes and the cars and so on since I was maybe 12. I mean, starting with uh, mopeds and, uh, you know, how can you make it go faster? I, I was always very interested in, like, tearing down the motor, understanding how it works and what yeah. you can do to improve it. So I was always doing that since very early stages. And uh, I think it's the best way to learn, you know, if you want to understand uh, how something works, tear it apart and put it back together again. And then, you know, if you make it work, you you have to you kind of figure <laughs> out how, how, it's, it how it's working. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Exactly. Yeah. So I've always been doing that. I spent you know, every evening in the garage as a, as a kid. Yeah, that's awesome, so. man. So when when did you, <clears throat> when, when does the Stark project in your mind, like when's the first kind of flame that starts kind of burning? Because when, you know, to, we're sitting talking about a model that people have put a deposit on, uh, but it's definitely goes, I'm sure it goes years back into the, you know, the origin of like, okay, this is, this is something. 
Yeah, I mean, I don't know for how long, but I've been thinking about it for many, many years. Like the future must be electric because, you know, it's you don't need gears, you don't need clutch, uh, you have a completely you know, controllable power. Uh, the noise issue is not there. The maintenance is kind of goes down drastically. Um, I mean, I should be just, I was always dreaming that it should be more fun to ride, you know, because yeah, it should be easier. Because, I mean, I think a lot of skilled riders, maybe they don't think so much about changing gears and the clutch and, and these kind of things. But as an amateur rider, I'm, I like riding, but I'm average. Yes. I'm always in the wrong gear. I'm <laughs> always struggling, yeah. you know, to get all of these things to synchronize because the riding a motocross is really synchronizing 10 different things at the same time. And yeah. that's extremely difficult. So if you take away three, it becomes significantly easier to ride. It's, you know, very obvious. And uh, I think traditionally bikes have prioritized a good clutch feel on the left side of the handlebar. So, you know, with your fingers and your hand, you can really control the clutch very well. You could never, never, it would be very difficult to do that with your feet, right? To have, yeah. So uh, they so they put the foot brake, uh, it, they made a foot brake, you know, because there was no space for a handbrake, basically. And um, that creates a huge amount of limitations in terms of how you can use the foot brake. I mean, a lot of the good riders, they're very, very capable, of course, of using foot brake, but... As an amateur rider, I, I think it's very difficult, and it's several things. One is like exactly the right pressure on the brake pedal with a thick motocross boot. That's very difficult to yeah. sense. But also how you put pressure on the foot pegs. I mean, you need to adapt your foot so that you can brake. So it is also going to limit your foot and weight positioning on the foot peg yeah. because yeah. you have to brake. So if if you can remove that, it also makes it easier. I mean, it's obvious with a bicycle, you know. Uh, so um, now I've been dreaming about that for many many years. What you could do with an electric bike, and uh, then uh, I think Alta did an amazing job with uh, the Redshift that they built, and it's a really cool bike. But um, yeah, unfortunately, they didn't succeed. So yeah, I mean, I think that's when like when that didn't really go through like when they went bankrupt or yeah i think that's what happened um it felt like okay you know who is who is gonna do this instead and uh it wasn't obvious for me but it took some time and then i had decided already to leave my previous company i wanted to do something new and i wanted to work with sustainability and since it didn't feel like anyone but according to me, doing it in the right way with electric motorcycles, okay, why? Let's give it a shot. Let's see what's possible. And, and I, c- so, I couldn't really resist. Like all that. No, please. Go oh on. no, sorry. Keep going. No, no, no. No, I mean, I I remember like the first feeling is like it's stupid. You know, trying to build a vehicle manufacturer is too difficult. But at the same time, it's so appealing. I couldn't resist. You know, so always kept on pushing and I remember always telling my friends you know like I'm looking into this but you know it's I'm never gonna do it because yeah you know it's too unlikely to succeed <laughs> but then I, I kept on working on it and okay here we are okay now now it's gonna succeed because if you just and, continue and I couldn't resist because it was too fun and so uh I think one of the things that um 
I guess one of the things that people think, right? So if you're a person that sees this launch and then you're got like, all right, there's this pre-sale kind of thing and you can put your hundred bucks down and you can get in line for the bike essentially. Uh, there's definitely like the counter side of the conversation is, oh yeah, this is just a money grab and people can, you know, like, let's see if this thing actually ever comes out and let's see if it actually blah, blah, blah. But essentially like you kind of, were involved in a very, very successful company that you, I guess, like sold out of or got like paid out of. So there is a level of like financial uh, independence on your end to where like that conversation probably shouldn't be that loud in people's mind, I guess. Because, I mean, obviously it's very expensive to start a manufacturing company and then you've got partners involved. So I'm not sure how it works, but it's not like uh, it's not like you've built a website and a prototype and you're using, because I think it was, you said like 5,000 units in the first six weeks. I mean, that's, is that like 500,000 worth of capital raised from that? Um, so it's not, yeah. it's not like you would have raised the capital to build all of these motorcycles. So I guess just like to talk about the money landscape like this is actually a company like you guys have some real backing to where it's not like you're relying on those pre-sales to build the motorcycles kind of thing no 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 i mean so before we launched our ambition was to sell 5,000 bikes the first year and yeah everyone you know involved was like 5,000 that's that's a big target you know that's a lot Same of bikes. You think you can do that? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but, but I, I, st I also felt like, wow, five thousand. It's probably going to be, you know, it's, it's a big volume. But um, then we launched, and uh, you know, it was just crazy. I mean, the amount of uh, interest that we received. So in the first twenty-four hours, the site was live six, because it just kept on crashing. Uh, which is, of course, extremely annoying. But, you know, it was just too much interest. And still, within those six hours, we sold 800 bikes. So as soon as the web went live, we sold, you know, two bikes every minute. Like, well, so like okay, there's a lot of people that, that want to have this bike. That's obvious. Yeah. And uh, that, that was... Uh, then we really started understanding, okay, this is going to be much bigger than we thought. And... Uh, yeah, but in the first six weeks, we sold, I think it was 5,000. Uh, yeah. And uh, we had prepared, we had been building production lines. So we had two different factories now, one for the battery, one for the bike. And they're almost finished. So the, the bike assembly line is being tested right now as we speak. Yeah. Uh, but, but this is prepared for building 5,000 bikes per year. Uh, we, yeah. We can probably push through several shifts to 1200 bikes per month but that's not enough so yeah. right now we are we're planning a new factory uh, so we're going to start production with these production lines and then now we're planning a new factory so we're investing much more money than we expected but that's fine there's a lot of you know the individuals that are behind this company uh, have made a lot of money in the past and we have decided to invest it into building Stark. So yeah. um, uh, now we are building a, a factory that should have a, a production capacity of 150,000 bikes per year. Yeah, that's insane. So that's, that's, yeah, yeah, that's a big insane. number. But you know, it's it, it's a big number and you, you can ask yourself, okay, how, how do you do that? That's not so easy. But 
our strategy is very much based upon the team that we have. So we're, we're trying to build a super team. <laughs> that, yeah. You know, that, that's really one of my learnings is, you know, to have the best people makes a tremendous difference when you want to create something. So we have been very, very focused on finding the best people, both within, you know, how do you engineer a motorcycle? How do you engineer the electronics? We work with we have some really, really great electronic engineers from Zagreb in Croatia. And, you know, how do you build the best production line? So our CEO and production managers, manager, they both have great experience from motorcycle industry and built several factories in the past uh, for big yeah. motorcycle companies like Piaggio uh, with these kind of volumes. So it's not just a group of, you know, guys that are seeing what they can do. It's it's a super yeah. capable team that has done this before. And now we're just slightly pushing the boundaries. Yeah. And I think that <laughs> that was uh, when I had spoke to, to you and Ben that first time, because I, I think that's always the impression and i think especially in motocross uh is there's so many companies that come and go uh, and especially people from like outside the industry uh you know you get like a joe gibbs racing or you know like alta uh that they come and then they go it, it's just a tough gig like where you're selling quite a niche product um in terms of like all of the factors that we you know described before like noise and mechanics and you know so i think that people are skeptical within the this industry in particular um but it was just something that i guess i found pretty clear when i spoke to you guys the first time i was like oh that's not what this seems like to me so i i figured that was probably just like a i guess a good conversation to have to kind of like give people a little bit more of that background you know yeah, thanks. Appreciate that. Thanks. <clears throat> yeah, please go ahead. Yeah, so I think um I think that I guess the yeah, that's like the big question that, that people would mostly have is like, okay, like the just the scaling side of it. Um uh, but so with that extra scale, um in terms of the orders what does that allow you guys to do like i guess that that would present some challenges um but that i'm sure would also present some opportunities as well right with the scaling the production well with the fact that you guys got so many more orders than you thought so quickly <clears throat> yeah yeah i mean I, I mean so our ambition is to build premium motorcycles. It's not only about volume, of course, you know, that's separated. Yeah. Uh, but uh, then, you know, our ambition is to transform the motorcycle industry to sustainability. So how do you do that? Well, the higher share the people that buy a sustainable product, okay, then you're succeeding more. So so I think that's the biggest win. Uh, you know, that's getting mm -hmm. a higher share of electric out there is and it's very nice and you know what's what's there that's causing many different things so we were talking to uh the british federation uh last week and yeah. uh, you know how can we incorporate electric into the current racing in 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 the nationals in, in england um and when they realized you know the volume of orders that we have in uk right now uh, yeah they said i think this was first they said okay we will redraw the regulations this weekend and they should be changed within two weeks so i mean that would not have happened if we sold 20 bikes yeah uh, in yeah okay um, but not but now like everyone is realizing that 
okay, this is transitioning very, very fast. So we have to we have to make this a reality. So I mean, there are several things. One of the benefits with higher volume that we're looking into is uh, stark superchargers. So yeah, okay. Um, so, I mean, today we have a range that we think is similar to full tank of gas uh, on a 450. It depends on how you ride, of course, and so on. But we believe it's going to be very beneficial if you can charge your bike at the track, you know, quite quickly. So we're looking into, you know, tracks all around the world where we could install stark superchargers. So you could go yeah. there and just plug in your bike. And uh, anyway, it depends. If you're doing two heats in a race, probably you, you should charge. You need to charge in between. Uh, so so that, I mean, that would not be possible without the volume. So now we're looking into you know which areas in the world do we have most amount of customers right now. And then uh, we're talking to these tracks. Uh, to see you know what's what's possible and i i think we will probably very likely that we will build stark superchargers it's early on right now but that is made possible by the volume of course yeah uh, where where were the most orders come <clears throat> from out of curiosity uh us <clears throat> by far yeah okay yeah right is there a particular like i guess regions of the country where because it does speak to i guess like economics and like socioeconomics in a way like where people are buying these bikes like especially in the u.s like it's quite a uh i guess it's charged in that in that sense you know so it'd be interesting to understand the the breakdown yeah i mean well <laughs> that we can talk about that for hours but i think the most, the biggest area for us is uh, uh, California, but it's all over US. Yeah. I mean, East Coast, West Coast, uh, there are orders from everywhere, uh, basically. But I think it's the areas where people ride the most, it's, yeah. it seems. It's not, it's not, because the bike is not, it's maybe 10% more expensive than uh, the 450s now. So it's, it's not really, we're trying to not make it too expensive. It should be obtainable. Yeah. Yeah. You know? For everyone that can buy a, a new bike it's uh i was watching a bunch of the videos again before i come in here and like just the the triple clamps uh like just to speak on the price point so i'm sitting there i'm thinking dude this bike is ridiculous like the triple clamps of aftermarket triple clamps essentially and you guys are running the same kind of split uh clamps that like the factory wp forks are running and then there's the tight uh, the custom foot pegs that you guys have built and then there's the axle block sliders that have clicks in them instead of you know like just guessing and measuring it's just even yeah i guess to speak on the price like it, it is crazy that like you guys have made this bike for the price that you have and this is just the initial offering and i mean i think with all of these kind of companies, there is an economy of scale to a point where, you know, things get cheaper. Like you can buy the raw materials of the bike for X amount, but then I guess you have to work backwards from there in terms of the labor and the, uh, the marketing. And then, you know, like you kind of add the costs in from there, but the more that you yeah. build, the cheaper that you can make the units over time. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, absolutely. So, I mean, it's, it's a difficult choice. I mean, you can see some of the OEMs where, you know, you have like a casted top triple clamp, and then you have a forged bottom one. And I mean, 
just from like a design perspective, it hurts. It hurts to see like it doesn't even match. Like the surface is yeah. so different. It's it, I, I, it's ugly. You know why? The difference if you would just forge both, it would cost you one dollar more in production. Why? Yeah, right. Why can't you do that? So we're looking into different ways and you know sometimes you can make a product much better with a quite small difference in investment then of course having fully machined you know triple clamps in 7075 t6 that is quite expensive but it's something that makes quite a big difference on the performance on the bike so we thought yeah so we thought okay that's it's worth it we will invest some money here to have better performance and uh then, of course, in the chain adjuster, you know, it's it's costing a little bit more. You know, just have this bolt with a nut that you're, you're used to with the two wrenches. It's a super cheap solution, but it's a sh- shit solution. I mean, I as a motorcycle <laughs> yeah. mechanic, every time in my life I have adjusted chains, I've been swearing about this. What the, why, yeah. the, why the fuck do I have to do this? Uh, there must be a better way to do it so it was the same for us i remember when we had the conversation okay we have to make the the chain adjusters now what are we going to do as i we couldn't make normal chain adjusters we had to do something better it would feel couldn't sleep on that (laughs) we have to to make it better (laughs) foot pegs foot pegs we could have just used some existing foot pegs but that's worse than chain adjusters yeah on the yeah, on yeah, the maybe. stock like uh, as bikes now that's that's the job i hate the most is putting new foot pegs on a bike i think that is the worst job in motorcycling so to see that the way that those go in uh that that to me is a huge oh, win. The, the clip oh you mean yeah, the clip yeah. there oh, oh yeah that's part so of annoying motorcycling. Yeah. yeah 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 every time you bleed <laughs> you, you slip 100%. with your fingers and you yeah no i mean uh you know that pin is ridiculous so I think these are just things that have been inherited over so many years and no yeah. one is questioning why. And uh, we just, we care so much. We cannot, you know, this is our baby. We cannot, you know, give our baby out there with a solution that we hate. You know, we have, mm. if, if we can do it better, we do that. But then I think sometimes, you know, we we have to balance it but we're really really bad in that normally so we for instance we um, we finished all of the bodywork of the bike uh one and a half year ago basically and uh, uh i mean we had uh, uh two internal uh two designers um in barcelona working full time on that and when it was done we f- it was like we had some GP guys there and like they liked the ergonomics and uh, uh, you know we it was looking good but it was not really perfect so in then we decided to okay we have we have to redo it so we spent I think we spent basically two guys working you know full 70 weeks plus some yeah yeah well of, of course a lot of other engineering resources to redo it so we developed all the bodywork two times well, yeah. <laughs> which was unnecessary of course <laughs> but because like it's so difficult if you know like we could make this better yeah yeah okay, that's it's we such have a to, we have to do. 
<laughs> yeah, it's that's such a dope mindset. And I think that, yeah, like it, it just comes across in, in the product too. Thank you. Thank you. That's so, what we're trying to achieve. But, you know. So with the, I guess the, you, you said before, I'm sorry, I'm jumping around a lot. Like it's just pretty much everything is interesting to me with this bike and the project and the whole deal. So, uh, but you said before that you have a conversation with someone and that's the first thing I need to call this guy. So when you're in this, you've got this uh, idea in your head for this electric motocross bike, you can see it in your mind's eye. You've got your own 3D uh, rendering in your mind of what you think this thing looks like and you've felt the feelings of riding it for the first time in your mind. What is the first like five to ten phone calls that you have to make to start to even piece this puzzle together? <laughs> That's a really nice, nice question. I mean, uh, uh, so the first was to find uh, Paul, of course, uh, our CTO and my co-founder, um, <clears throat> because if you want to build a bike that's better than others, you need engineers that have built these kind of bikes before, you know, because that experience, you know, you need it. And um, uh, so I, I met a few different people and um, I, I think when me and Paul met, we both just felt, you know, we had similar ideas of how we would like to do it. He is also, a, he's mostly a hard enduro rider, but very passionate, super passionate about motocross and enduro. Um, yeah. And uh, yeah, we just, it felt right. So that was, of course, one of the first phone, phone calls. We also involved uh, a very famous uh, motorcycle um, engineer called Tony Fual who has written several books about uh, motorcycle dynamics and chassis and has been really? involved in uh, yeah he has developed a software I think it's used by many of the MotoGP teams I don't know if that's still the case but it has at least in the past I mean basically every MotoGP team has been using his, his software for calculating uh, chassis flex and stuff like that so that's you know one of the things because if you want to build a better bike first of all you need to analyze the, the competition you know what is the right flex of the chassis uh, what is the right center of gravity what are, what is the right squat angle uh, and, and these kind of things so um, of course you know paul has a lot of experience with that but tony fall i mean he's a legend i mean he's maybe the motorcycle chassis guru i mean so, and he was very uh, passionate. He liked the idea, so he has been helping us uh, quite a bit. And uh, so that was one of the early phone calls. Then, of course, the electronics, <clears throat> finding uh, people that has the experience of building, you know, the highest level uh, power electronics in the world. And um, I think we were very fortunate to find uh, the team in Zagreb that has, has joined us in this journey. And uh, um, yeah, that was one of the early calls. And uh, yeah, yeah. Yes, um, that's the first ones. And and so you basically <coughs> leave uh, MX twenty four or twenty four MX, um, and then do you just go full time into this? From I guess because there's got to be like a commitment point where it's like, okay, I'm doing this thing. What what you've done doesn't come to life unless you're pretty much all in. I'm assuming. Um, so you pretty much like there's a, just a day where you decide like, all right, this is how it's going down. And then you kind of make those initial phone calls and then bang from there. Like you're the CEO of this company that's largely still 
<clears throat> just a figment of your imagination with some kind of tangible people that are now working on it. But I guess how long is that process from making those initial phone calls to uh, a launch video that goes on, on YouTube and across social media and press releases? <clears throat> yeah, I mean, when I had my last date defined in 24MX, it was really, really scary for me because I always been working. I I mm. never really had any long vacation since I was 17. So uh, I was afraid you know, what's going to happen if I have nothing to do. So I I think I started five companies actually uh, when I when I left, um, which was ridiculous, of course, because I, at that point I wasn't sure if Stark was going to succeed. Uh, yeah, okay. I mean, it was more of an idea at that point, you know, and uh, so I started a real estate company and e-commerce, com- two different e-commerce companies and uh, some other things. But and actually, uh, a lot of those went well, but I'm only a passive owner in those now. Uh, so yeah, create an e-commerce company with a friend of mine, uh, David, who uh, uh, just he took over that Um completely so i'm not involved anymore and i'm now i'm well i was quite early on 100 focused on stark but the first day i i think i yeah i started i think it was five companies yeah so it was a bit crazy but i was very afraid of uh you know i cannot have nothing to do what well, i will go crazy yeah. you know i need to because also when you start it it's difficult to work 12 hours a day on it mm-hmm. because you're you know everything you don't know what to do slower yeah, and yeah. you know you're waiting on few yeah. people, so you have this dead time, and then you know when you have a few hours, okay, let's do this. That um, you know, so yeah, that's that's what yeah. happened. I don't it, know if that was so smart, but uh, that's what I did. Yeah, well, I think uh, <laughs> like yeah, I mean, I can I can definitely relate to that in the sense of I remember when I sort of started doing the podcast, I was just, I just committed to it. I was like, I'm just going to do this and I'm down to be broke for a little while. Cause I kind of, I didn't start it with a lot. I'd, I'd come back from America or whatever. Um, and wasn't just like, what just wasn't ideal circumstances, but I was like, no, I'll just, just do this and that's it. And I'll commit to only this. And I think it could be a good thing. But in the early days of starting any business, there's like pockets of time that you can work on something and then it's like you might get three hours and you've typed all the emails that you could type you've done all the editing that you could like it just hasn't got that momentum yet you know whereas nowadays i couldn't i could work for 24 hours a day and still not finish my work and i'm sure that that's the position that you've been in for a, a while with stark um but like so i guess how long did that ball take to get rolling and and when did it start to kind of gather momentum and and that that kind of thing i mean it hasn't been that long i mean maybe maybe two and a half years bit really less. yeah that it's seems fast. like such a short amount of time to turn around the, the product that you guys have yeah it is it is very short um actually but I think it's very much based upon that we we found the right people within each area and yeah. we also we have invested a lot to uh, to do it so uh, you know we've not had you know five guys working on it we have 40 engineers working on it full time um, so uh, I mean that's I think that's the, the difference and also 
you know, with with the experience in you know all the different areas, you know, if that's engineering, design, business, whatever, if you have done it before, you mm. you go straight to the point. You know, you don't need to spend time figuring out where to go. You know exactly where to go. And also for us, I mean, with the manufacturing suppliers we work with, we know them from the past. Yeah, because uh, he's worked with them for many many years, so we we can call them immediately. Uh, you know the the swing arm manufacturer, the motor case casting company, and and so on. We uh, we know these guys, so it's faster from that perspective as well. So to build the prototype, so you guys are working on your own production line now um, and your own factories. So there'll be a separate chassis like motorcycle. Um, production line and then um, an engine production line so to get this prototype built it was all outsourced uh initially to get like the 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 initial working models done i mean we have been doing all the engineering in-house uh, and all the design yep. in-house um but when it comes to producing the prototype parts that's done externally so you have a cnc a workshop that is machining the component according to your drawings or 3D printing the plastics according to our drawings. Um, so yeah, that's that's on externally. So you said before um, <clears throat> that Alta, when Alta failed, you kind of asked why. So I guess there's two ways that you could look at that particular situation. One person could look at it and say, oh, well, that's a sign that there isn't an interest in electric bikes. It's not viable. You know, you could basically just pick all the negatives out of it. But it seems like you actually looked at Alta leaving as an opportunity rather than a negative. Is that sort of fair to say? Yeah, I think there are many companies that have proved that, you know, electric technology is possible. I mean, uh, of course, Tesla is a huge inspiration, but Alta also proved that you could build a capable bike. Yeah. And, you know... You can have a theory, but they were the first ones to prove it was possible. Um, and then, you know, I I think, well, uh, you know, there were several things that I think could be done even better, both from a product perspective, but also how, you know, they worked commercially. I mean, of course, I don't know exactly. I, I haven't been in the company, yeah. but just from what you can see yeah. from the outside, that um, seems to be a lot of interest and... Uh, I just think you need to go big. You cannot produce, you know, five bikes per day. That's not possible. Mm. You need to think large scale production. Uh, you need to think, I mean, global sales. I mean, and uh, yeah, I, I think it was clear. It for me, it's very very clear that you know, electric is the future. The question is only when it's going to take over and. If you can launch an electric vehicle in a, in a category where there is no competition and it's better than gas, it's going to succeed. You know, you, you can yeah. only fail for internal reasons. That if you fail in, um, you know, sales is not because of interest, you know. For sure there will be interest. There is interest in every vehicle category. Uh, yeah. You can fail in marketing if you do a really bad job in showing your product uh, but you know we just need to show it it's not so 
we're not selling t-shirts that's much more difficult we have an interesting product so we just need to show that and uh, i mean then you can say fail in production but we have built a team of people who knows how to build motorcycle factories so if, if you have if someone has built several motorcycle factories before uh, successfully you know it's a quite high chance that they can do that again yeah um, <clears throat> yeah and, and so uh from the outside i'd be interested to hear your thoughts on why you think alta did fail because for from all accounts they they definitely like the second iteration of the red hawk was a much better uh motorcycle than the first one uh but what what are your thoughts around that i don't think they failed because the product wasn't good enough i think the product could have been made better every product can of course but it was good enough i think you know for the market to, to i mean you can see that from the Alta owners uh, today that you speak to, I mean, everyone I mm. talk to are super happy with the bike. Then, you know, everyone has ideas how we can make it even better, you know, make it a little bit lighter, more range, the weight distribution, things like that. Um, but I think they failed for business reasons. That is what I would assume. Uh, of course, they had this deal with Harley Davidson. I don't know the specifics, but it seems they didn't. There was a plan that didn't go through. I don't know exactly what the plan was and what didn't go through. It's hard to say why. Um, Harley Davidson had a focus to build electric bikes. They went with Livewire uh, instead, which hasn't really succeeded. I, I mean, they're not not really succeeding with that um, commercially, at least. Yeah, and uh, you know, then they failed to raise capital, uh, and they, they failed. I think. If they could have scaled production faster, I don't know. You could also maybe that was not possible because of you know their financial situation. I don't know, but uh, you know they seem to, and maybe they weren't. I don't know how good they were in sourcing, because you know that's also one aspect. The pro- the product was rather expensive, and obviously they were losing money since they went bankrupt. But if you don't make a company profitable it will fail you have mm. to make it profitable the question is only when so yeah you know may, maybe maybe they had challenges in sourcing and production and, and financials but uh, it's very hard from the outside to say exactly what happened there i mean uh, i'm sure the guys that were there knows uh, much better um and uh, i mean i've been speaking to a few people that were there that uh, you know seem to be really really good people so uh but yeah, it seems to be more business reasons why why it failed. Yeah, yeah, and and that would make sense because yeah, I mean everybody that I know that's either got one or spent time on one um, did say how good they were. But I think that was, I think that was probably the most striking thing from when I spoke to Josh after he was in Spain with you guys is that he's owned the Alta motorcycles and he's he's really been the pioneer of like being the best guy in the world to ride those bikes and kind of show what they're capable of um and then that conversation that i had with him like that he's not a guy that bullshit would bullshit me like we're just generally friends you know and he said how much better that bike was i think that was you know that was one of the uh the big things for me with this project but yeah it's not like alta made a bad motorcycle like hill already liked it and was you know pumped on it um 
So yeah, it would make sense that it was more like a commercial thing. Yeah, I think so. I think so. I mean, you need to so, do everything right. That's the hard thing. Yeah. So what I guess in the the current situation with Stark now, I guess what are the biggest challenges in obviously every business just has the standard challenges that it faces but in terms of what you guys are trying to pull off in building the best electric motorcycle um what are the main kind of uh sticking points where like you guys really have to uh, work hard to kind of overcome those those challenges so i mean now getting to production is for sure the the biggest challenge uh so the production lines are very far ahead. I, I think that's not going to be... We have challenges there, but it feels like they are not very much, very much on top of them. Getting all the components in time is a massive challenge. Uh, so, I mean, we have hundreds, obviously, thousands of components in the bike. And if we don't get the rear shaft or you know one bolt, we cannot assemble the bike. So the supply chain and the distribution of getting all the components in time is an incredible challenge. It's very difficult and you're relying on many different manufacturers that are very, very professional, but if one is late, uh, the production is late. So I think that is our biggest challenge, uh, without a doubt. And uh, we're pushing very hard for it. Um, we have a good team here as well, but um, I think there's a very high risk of being late in production, which we are assuming. We're, we're assuming we're, you know, we're going to be late um, because if, if we don't, it's, we risk the company. You know, so you need to hope for the best, plan for the worst. And um, yeah, yeah. I, I don't, I don't think we will be so late, but we will probably be a little bit late, um, as it looks like. But you know, going into production is an incredible challenge. It's super super hard yeah oh 100 and i think any uh like any early company that in this space i mean obviously tesla had their um issues with it from the start like it's just i think it's kind of the nature of the beast right like you there's so many like literally hundreds of variables in every single product and so many steps and so many places that you know it can go wrong yeah yeah i mean if I mean, one of the toolings gets uh, fucked up, and you know, it can take a few months to make a new one. Uh, so, um, yeah, I mean, but that's it's a challenge that every manufacturer faces. It's just, yeah, it's harder the first time. Uh, that's that's sure. But I, I, I think it's gonna be fine. I think um, it feels like we are we are the team is working incredibly hard on it right now. I think, you know, the way. Everyone is committed to the company now. I mean, people are pushing incredibly hard, working over hours, working weekends, uh, and really taking this personally to uh, do the absolute best that they can. It's it's amazing to be in that experience too, to be inside that team and to see yeah. how you know everyone is pushing as hard as they possibly can. So it's it's very tough, but it's also a nice experience. Yeah, I, I can imagine that there would be a crazy vibe like it's not very often that that you guys like anyone in general would get to be like this in the thick of doing something that nobody's ever 
done before. And I mean, it, it might sound hyperbolic to some people, but I mean, for me, this is like such an exciting thing to happen to, to two wheeled sport that, you know, or just like any form of two wheel, anything. It's just, this is such a crazy time to, to, you know, be living through something like this. Yeah. I mean, I think so much is going to happen in, in the coming years. And, uh, this is, uh, this is the start of, you know, I think changing, changing our industry to something better. Uh, I think it's going to expand the motocross industry. It's going to make the sport bigger. It's going to help the sport, uh, where you can bring tracks closer to societies. You know, if you just compare it to other sports, you know, you have football fields in the middle of communities, tennis courts, uh, yeah. uh, whatever. And, uh, motocross is always pushed out you know it's, it's out in nowhere you have to spend at least an hour in the car just to get to the track and the reason is the noise so you know if we make but it's also other limitations which you know you need to be a mechanic to have a bike if, if you cannot change oil filters just valves stuff like that's very difficult to own a motocross bike so when we bring down the service level to the same as a bicycle it's also enters up, you know, because there are so many people that love adrenaline sports. If that's skiing, yeah. uh, bicycling, mount, downhill, whatever, you know, this is just the next level. I think motocross is probably the toughest sport in the world. And it's, you know, if you want adrenaline, I don't know what else, what's better. It's very hard to find something. <laughs> so uh, I think there's a lot of people that would enjoy that if you make it more accessible for people in terms of availability of tracks um, and uh, you know ease of ownership i think uh i think there's a a pretty i think you're right like there's going to be some kind of unforeseen stuff as well that kind of happens uh in the industry and i reference a lot to mountain biking and what e-bikes did for mountain biking um because i mean this I don't know if it sounds bad like I'm sorry but it's such a redneck sport like motocross is just the most redneck sport and I mean the, god bless it for that too uh but you know it's because of what you said like you go to any track it's in the middle of fucking nowhere and then the people that are running the <laughs> exactly. tracks are from the middle of nowhere that it's just like you just get a middle of nowhere service at our sport and you know imagine having uh i guess to go back to the mountain bike reference they start uh, governments all over the world have started building these mountain bike parks at ski resorts and in the winter yeah. they run the hills with the um with the snow obviously and then in the summer they convert it to this mountain bike park you've got five-star resort accommodation you've got uh di different levels for all these kids and you're actually creating the same vibe like people that doctors and lawyers and accountants and all of these people that are, are going on these expensive ski trips because of the amenities and the facilities and you're actually you're getting this kind of different demographic into uh the the industry and they're the people that kind of fund the industry like they're the people with the cash they're the people that'll buy a twenty thousand dollar s-work specialized and you know it, and it, it sort of has always felt to me that motocross isn't appealing to those guys and you can see it all through australia now 
any of these big mountain bike parks, my uncle's actually a guy that uh, builds these big trail networks for the government. And I've been there from cool. day one. And you just see the people that are riding bikes at day one. And then when these big projects are finished and the money that these people can bring uh, into the industry, because they're not just the people that live out in the middle of nowhere and are scrounging together to buy an old piece of shit 80 that you know barely runs. It's like that you can actually bring in this like whole new level of money into the industry. And then that gets like spent within the industry. So I think that there's so many levels at which moving towards an electric uh, model and a more sustainable model. I just think that there's, there's, I guess just unintended consequences that I think are going to be better by proxy. Yeah, I really agree with you. I, and I mean, I think also for racing, you know, if you, I mean, first of all, of course, I'm a bit biased here, but think about the first time that you have an electric bike lining up with the best 450 riders in the world on the same starting gate. I mean, that's so exciting just to see what's going to happen. And I, yeah. I think that that is a very exciting feeling. But also the next step of that is, you know, bringing in bigger sponsors to the sport you know, the big mobile companies, etc., they are not sponsoring motocross today because it's a dirty sport. Yeah. But if we bring into, if we, you know, if we accept sustainability, if we bring that into the sport, you're also going to have a completely different type of, you know, sponsors entering and, and so on, which, you know, can bring the sport up in the racing to the next level as well. So I guess to touch on the the racing bit, because there's probably pretty <clears throat> a, a deep hole that we could go into here. I think the racing that's going to be your biggest battle because of all the videos, like we've posted some good videos on this shit <laughs> that's got a lot of views and a lot of comments, and there is a lot of people that are like, if I fucking go to a track and there's it, like <laughs> carrying on about like the electric thing and no noise in a stadium. As the CEO of this company like what do you think a, a race looks like with electric bikes <laughs> i just that's enjoy your biggest this conversation battle. so much <laughs> i mean i think it's so i mean like the people that you know also the haters you know they they make the discussion more interesting you know <laughs> so 100%. i think it's also it's quite fun to see a lot of these comments but uh, <clears throat> i mean uh there are many adrenaline sports in the world without engine noise. Mountain biking, downhill, skiing, goes on forever. So, I mean, do you need engine noise to have adrenaline sport and have big crowds? No, absolutely not. That, that's, that's clear. The soccer doesn't have and, much noise uh, and those crowds get pretty wild. <laughs> exactly. And, you know, the difference is that the players can hear the crowd. Yeah. You know, and I, I think that is really bringing in a different dimension for them because you know a motocross rider he can't hear shit because the motor is hauling so loud you know you, you can oh if you hear the next rider to you i mean normally you can't even hear that you only hear yourself because you know it's so loud maybe you can hear the guy in front of you uh so i think without the noise aspect okay first of all okay from a racing perspective you can race in places that never were possible before so you, you can bring in yeah. racing too and also without the um, the fumes i mean that's normally a problem with you know indoor space that the fumes gets you know ridiculous uh, so you can you can race in more 
arenas and more more places that's good uh without the noise you know how's the racing gonna be like i think the crowd is gonna be louder you're gonna hear them even more the riders are gonna hear each other which is also interesting so i mean now i think people are sometimes screaming at each other but normally you can't hear them you know you yeah. can't hear a guy behind you trying to pass but now you will hear him him <laughs> screaming at you move over you know or whatever and uh, i think that's gonna make it more interesting uh you know the the riders as they go by a turn they will hear the crowd standing in that turn uh, shouting at them you know uh, yeah in a good or bad way which i think is gonna make it more interesting and i mean i think the noise for me i re- i think the start is really like quite powerful you know with a bunch of 450s you know heading off full full throttle but you know once the start is done when you're in a stadium or at the track for more than one hour with that noise it just it's exhausting you can't speak it makes you tired so for me i think um, i think it's only gonna make it better but we're gonna have a 10-year period perhaps where we have both so we're, yeah. we're still gonna have at the highest level we're gonna have gas versus electric so we're still gonna have the noise but we're gonna have the incredibly interesting variable of gas versus electric which i think yeah. is gonna make racing so much more interesting uh, but then you know maybe 10 15 years from now probably it's gonna be all electric i would assume and so to talk about like <clears throat> let's just fast forward to the day a stark varg lines up at anaheim one with a top 450 rider on that bike how what's the pathway to get to that and what does that look like for you guys will you be fielding a factory team like is there you know do you have a pathway to racing that is in your mind right yeah, now? yeah. <clears throat> absolutely i mean um, so we're talking to a lot of the federations globally right now well, well not all of them but a lot of them so france has already changed the rules so we can compete on a national level in france right now italy uh, is giving us a wild card this year Uh, most likely uh, they're saying they will change the rules for next year england is changing the rules now like within the next couple of weeks uh, so we can race there we're talking to fim uh, so I, i think they will change rules maybe not for next year but perhaps the year after that that's not confirmed, but uh, that's what I believe. Uh, we're talking to the AMA and Feld as well. Um, maybe two years, I would guess as well. I mean, it's also, you know, these are huge corporations that have a big responsibility in CSR. Uh, so, you know, how can you not, you have this issue today, you know, that you're not sustainable and, and it's a problem. And here you have an opportunity to test sustainability and most likely it's just going to bring interest if if it doesn't work it's not going to work out but how could you say no to that in today's society i I can't see that happening so it's i think within two years we're going to see racing at the highest level and um, meanwhile we're gonna we're gonna have some national championships sweden is also changing the rules as well i don't know where we are in australia um um i think yeah, well uh, actually for australia uh jeff lace you had him on the podcast yeah. uh, a few months ago yeah. he has uh, joined yeah. as a general manager for australia so uh wow. uh, very excited to have him on board yeah that yeah. is epic he's he such a good guy yeah i know <laughs> feels oh, that's, that's awesome. uh, you know it's you, part of our you super guys team. Could not, <laughs> yeah you guys could not have picked a better person yeah okay that's so good 
Thank you. Thank you. I'm really, really glad to have Jeff on the team. He's fantastic. And uh, he's getting started now to talk to the Australian Federation as well as uh, to the dealers to uh, to build our presence in Australia and New Zealand as well. Um, <clears throat> so um, it's a quite clear path to racing. And we're also going to attend some special races, of course, uh, maybe a stra- Red Bull straight rhythm and things like that. Um, so yeah, it's gonna happen pretty fast. Um, we might, we might attend some kind of world championship race some way. Uh, we will see. Then, um, yeah, no, it's gonna happen. It's gonna start in some areas and it's gonna grow. And I think we'll see when we see it in MXGP and the AMA Supercross. But I think within two years we're gonna see it. That's that's pretty exciting. exciting. And and so how uh the bike has eighty horsepower. That's the I guess the peak number. Um how does yeah. it fit into racing in terms of like what have you got to do to this bike? Like is it unfair to race it against four fifties if you're gonna enter it into the two fifty class? Is there some kind of like restriction? Because essentially it's like you guys have the keys to the thing. So they the FIM comes to you and says, Hey, it needs to be this many horsepower, it needs to have this much output. And you guys are like, Cool, we can do that. But then essentially you're <laughs> the ones making it like you could do whatever. So what's that conversation look like of how do you actually make this thing compete fairly against those motorcycles yeah i mean it's an interesting question of course i mean if you want to control a 250 to see that it's following the regulations you need to you need to tear off the cylinder head and you need to measure the stroke and the diameter of the piston to figure out the, the ccs yeah. so i mean that's you know quite a big job for just checking that the bike is legal you, you won't do that for every bike every race you might do it now and then with electric you can control so much easier so we will give access to the federations so that they can access the data wirelessly uh, for each bike so that they can see exactly how much power you have been using so they can check after race what has been your peak power and they can also check before of course but makes more sense after so of course we don't have cc's what we are discussing with the federations now is to set a horsepower limit which is yep. equivalent to uh, you know a factory 250 or 450. Uh, so uh, and I think that's the easiest way. Just um, you know, same maximum horsepower, and let's see which technology works best. But I mean, there's kind of an issue there, in the sense that the the Star Racing Yamaha has more, I'm assuming, peak horsepower than uh, a factory Honda. Like that bike, you yeah, mean you just ride the. Yeah, you just ride the stock motorcycle. It's like, oh, this is a way faster motorcycle. So, I mean, is there, uh, is it unfair? Like, how do we manage what's fair? Like, because essentially, you're kind of you're bringing a, a a gun to a knife fight. Essentially, if you're you've got a bike that you could have unlimited power capacity, you know, within reason, obviously, like a standard 450, let's say like 60, 62 horsepower, and then you guys are coming with 80. So it's like, but doesn't it make sense as a competitor to want to be on a better motorcycle? That's why you would, if you're a privateer lights class rider, you would buy a Yamaha because it's a faster motorcycle stock. So it's like, 
to just say like, okay, we're just going to have this peak horsepower. It's kind of almost unfair to you guys in a way that's built this more capable motorcycle, if that makes sense. Well, I mean, racing needs to be quite equal to be fun. I mean, uh, if you're way faster, racing will get less interesting. So, of course, you know, we have to, I mean, I, we know every rider that has tested our bike now is faster on the Stark than their 450. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so that's that's a good start. But in the end, I mean, with the 250s, for instance, in the 450, it's more like an open class. I mean, I'm not sure you really need yeah. more power. I, I don't. I, so I, I don't think the 450 class is really the, the challenge here. But the 250 class, you have an advantage for sure. You can see that with the, the Star Racing 250 and. Uh, yeah so uh, everyone has the same limitations like 250cc that's your limitation yeah if you can get more yeah. power out of it that's great for you so i think it, it would make sense to set the same maximum as the say kind of the fastest 250 yeah, because yeah. that's what everyone can get you know essentially uh and you know, then if you look at amateurs, you know, a lot of people won't tune their bike. They will have a, you know, a stock engine, maybe by a different exhaust, which gives them one more horsepower. But yeah, <clears throat> they can, you know, they can tune it. They can get, you know, factory modifications similar to that done to their motors if, if they want to. So if they have that ability, I think, you know, guys on an electric bike should have that ability as well. To, to have a similar level but I, I think that can be fine-tuned you know over, over years and we need to start and then yeah. we figure out that the stark is way too fast but i i don't i mean i think that it will be quite easy you know it's gonna be good racing yeah well i mean <clears throat> you like josh hill when he was on here talking about it, he said you're pretty much whole shot of 450 every time and it's like if we're if we're in that territory, like if you guys just rock up to A one in two years time and whole shot every single main event for seventeen races. <laughs> I mean, like that's a that I might sound like an idiot right now to some people listening, but that's potentially the the world that we're living in. Like for anyone that's driven a Tesla, that's the world that we're about <laughs> to live in in dirt bikes. So it's like, I mean, yeah, yeah I, I just, I, I just, I'm envisioning some like crazy shit going down that like everyone in the in the racing community is going to kind of have to scratch their head and be like, how do we deal with this thing? Yeah, I mean, uh, of course, you know, that would be fantastic if, if that happens for uh, for Stark. But I think there are so many variables in racing, you know, that that will. Uh, you know, uh, that can change those scenarios. Of course, you have an advantage with not having gears and you have, you know, much faster response. You can control the power much better. But this is the advantage of the electric technology. So if yeah, electric technology so is better, advantages. eventually it's going to win. Uh, but but if it wins, it's also proving electric is the future. So then the other brands needs to develop electric bikes. It's the same, you know, if someone is developing uh, better suspension, Okay, if if you want to continue to compete with these guys, you'd need to also innovate and build a better suspension. So, I think that's what needs to happen. I mean, should we limit technical development because someone is finding a way to make it better? That that sounds very strange and very boring. 
Yeah. Like, no, that, that's not change anything. Let's just ride same bikes as today for the next 50 years. Let's not improve anything. Why? Why would you do that? <laughs> racing, for me, racing is R&D. It's, it's to evolve, you know, to find better ways. If you see some riders finding uh, new ways to ride, you know, suddenly James Stewart starts to scrub. Like, what the yeah. fuck did he just do? And then everyone is copying that because it's faster. And, you know, it should be the same with the bikes or whatever it is. That's racing. Are you are you prepared to be the most hated man in in motocross and supercross? <laughs> <laughs> because like, let's just say you guys come out and hold like I'm just picturing like a six meter hole shot at A one the first time and just everyone in their stands just throwing beer into the into the fucking crowd just carrying on being like ah oh, he's ruined everything. <laughs> No, I, I think, you know, if we would be that superior, which, you know, then probably they would change regulations, say that, no, you need to reduce the power a little bit or something like that. Yeah, okay, no, I just, I'm, to do that. I'm just picturing, I'm just picturing <laughs> the world just being like so mad at you. <laughs> but I mean, it's like, because you would have made yeah. the, of like a superior product, but it's like, I just hope you know that that shit's coming for you when, when this bike but is it's a the bit, best thing. But, but it's a bit like, uh, electric cars nowadays. I mean, yeah. I saw a commercial. I don't remember. It was for one of like the fast, you know, gas cars. But it was like the numbers they were showing was like, why are you showing that anymore? I mean, my Tesla Model 3, which is not a sports car, is way faster. <laughs> so, I mean, that is, becomes irrelevant. Uh, and I think that's that's why we are here. We want to transition this industry to electric. And I think that's going to be better uh, in every aspect. Uh, then, of course, you know, a lot of people are always... You know, you have this, you know, current like early adapters, early majority, late majority, and and so on and there are always there will be people that love new technology i mean they're here now for sure that's yeah. that's why yeah. they're ordering a bike then you will have haters that want you know they want two strokes uh because that was that was the 90s yeah it was amazing but uh you know that uh, things have to evolve you know some people still have a don't use smartphone but you know smartphone is better in most aspects so uh, <clears throat> i think you can't really stop technical development it's it's difficult if something is better it's gonna it's gonna win if it's not better it's not gonna win but that's the beauty of it. it's quite pure you know if uh, so if something is better it will take over and so uh and so I guess when when do you think that there will be like the first race that that you guys do like it I'm sure that it's it's not going to be uh I mean is there like a you guys could rock up and race one of these things like at, at any point you guys have Tortelli as a test rider like he obviously still rips like cuz I think that uh it <laughs> I guess to make a motocross bike first would show that that would sort of have to be one of the key intentions. Am I, am I right in saying that? Yeah. I mean, of course, racing is super important. It's the best way to, to prove your capabilities. Um, so, um, I mean, competition is always, no matter the sport, the best way to, to show what's possible. So I think we will attend the real race, the first real race uh, this fall. Really? Yeah. I'm I'm excited. And who would Tortelli be the guy? You think? 
could be. Could be. It depends. Uh-huh. There is a there is a veteran world championship in Hawkstone. Uh, could uh, be could be that we go there. That would be pretty. That would be not, pretty sick. Not des- not decided yet. <laughs> but, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. would be fun. Yeah, fair <laughs> enough. Fair enough. Um, there are so, a few opportunities. <clears throat> so, what was that the key reason in uh, making a motocross model first? Because I guess it motocross is probably the more niche way that you could go in terms of like mass adoption of this product like if you wanted to sell the most uh products possible then the highest selling bikes in the world are mopeds they're not motocross bikes so i guess i'm seeing that you guys probably don't just exclusively want to sell motocross bikes forever um but why was this the kind of launch point for the company yeah, so we, we want to develop and sell a full range of motorcycles, uh, maybe not mopeds, but uh, you know, let's say from 125cc and up, uh, focused on the premium and performance segment. We started with the motocross because we think it's the most demanding form of motorcycling. So it's the toughest challenge from an engineering perspective. If you can build an electric motocross bike that outperforms all of the gas bikes, you know, I think you can build any other motorcycle because... Motocross is such a ridiculous sport. You know, the the bike is going through so many. I mean, jump sixty meters long, uh, ten meters high, land, continue riding, and it should be all fine. <laughs> if motocross yeah. didn't exist and you would make up the sport today, people would just think that you're an, an idiot. <laughs> no, you can't do that. But you can because it's transitioned into that, and now it's it's here. So, I think it's the the best category to prove your capabilities before developing other bikes. Uh, and also it's not road legal. So it's um, uh, not the same amount of paperwork, which you could easily get yeah. stuck in uh, as a start. So uh, it's a safe route from, from a bureaucracy perspective. And it's also yeah. the most challenging route from an engineering perspective. So, I think it makes sense to prove yourself in motocross and then transition into other categories. You know, if we would yeah. make a scooter first and then a few years later come with a motocross, uh, that would feel strange, you know. I don't yeah. know. Uh, but if we make a motocross now, we, we manage to make that the, the fastest motocross bike in the world and then we build a number of street bikes in various categories, it's more of a natural path, I think. Yeah. Yeah, no, that it definitely makes sense. And so do you see your uh stock funding like a I guess a factory team that would race like a factory AMA Supercross team and then a world motocross team are those kind of uh natural progressions in your mind? I mean, yeah, so we need to have uh we need to have factory teams exactly how that's going to happen is too early to say i think right now we are talking to different teams around the world uh, so i think we will start off or if not start off i think we will build it together with partners that has you know everything in place existing infrastructure uh, that is already yeah. running exactly you know because that's just going to be way faster uh, and it's a bit the same you know find the best guys that are doing it today and then we see if we can do it slightly better together. 
instead of you know trying to build it from the ground up which will take much longer and uh, not sure it would be better and so, so i guess yeah, we're it, interesting in team partners so i guess it's kind of getting a little bit ahead of the you know cart before the horse kind of thing but can you do you think that it would kind of position you guys differently from a commercial standpoint in terms of sponsors. Like you mentioned that earlier that you think that this could bring in different sponsors. Is that sort of something in your mind as well that you think that when you do go racing that you guys will be positioned differently as a result of the product? Yeah, I think so. And we had, we had a very, very large company uh, reaching out to us that wanted to cooperate in racing as a sponsor. Um, so I think it's going to open up doors that this industry, you know, never, never seen before. Because so it's such an you... interesting sport. Yeah, sorry, con- continue, sorry. I mean, <clears throat> I think Supercross and Motocross can grow massively. Um uh, from where it is and uh, I think there are many larger companies that would be interested in getting involved if there's a sustainability path and why do you think that's such a why do you think that's such a big hurdle for companies now because I guess like just you're immersed in that sustainability landscape and I just don't think it's a it's not a conversation that's happened at our sport at all and I mean it's it's not a conversation I'm particularly having a lot um so I guess just I mean for my own personal education like why do you think that is such a an important thing that we're kind of we have been missing sustainability or or, yeah, and I, mean, I think that why you think that that would uh, entice more companies, if that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, the world has an incredible focus on sustainability. So even, you know, in many places in the world, it's a legal requirement to have a CSR uh, business plan. So if you look at the biggest companies in the world, if that's, you know, some, some of the phone companies, computer manufacturers, you know, um, they are not they don't want to be associated to something that is well this is like motorcycling is not neutral it's it's bad it's causing damage to our planet so they they would not take that like every big corporation in the world except maybe some oil companies and even them are focused on sustainability mm. like every every single big corporation in the world has a csr policy and plan in place because it's, it's a requirement. And, uh, you know, then to take a decision to to sponsor something that is negative for the environment, it's very difficult. So that you will only do that if you're inside the industry. So, I mean, now a lot of the sponsors, majority mm. of them, are companies from within the industry. Because, you know, if you're selling motocross gear, okay, of course you're going to sponsor motocross riders and teams. But if you're building computers, why would you, if you have a very clear policy that you're working towards sustainability, why would you start investing in something that's destroying the planet? That's not going to happen. So I think it has the potential of bringing in much larger capital into the industry if uh, you know teams move in the sustainability direction. 
and so essentially it's like I, I've honestly <laughs> never thought of this from this perspective. I think from a, manupa- a manufacturer perspective, it makes sense. But in terms of just this being something that's handicapping our entire industry, because it's essentially as motocross and supercross and racing stands right now, it's like we're on a one-way street heading in the wrong direction. So it's like we're kind of heading backwards. If if sustainability is this direction and we're heading this direction, we're essentially going backwards. And it makes sense that only the companies that are going backwards with us would be investing in the, this sport. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and I mean, it's a shrinking industry. Uh, it's, uh, well, I don't know, maybe stable slash maybe shrinking a little bit um, because because of that. And uh, I I think it's, I don't think we should do sustainability because the world is pressuring the motorcycle industry to do it. That That's not our ambition. Our ambition is to bring on a product that's better and more fun. Uh, which gives yeah. a better experience, uh, and I think that that should be the motivation. You know, I I don't believe in compromises. I don't think that's the way to do it. I, I think the way to do it is be better in every single aspect, and that's the challenge, and that's the fun part of it. You know, to make that work. And uh, if it's we just succeed I, with I, that, it's going to be. Yes. Oh, sorry. The good. time difference kind of gets me a little bit. Um, <laughs> yeah. So. Uh, yeah, do you, do you think that not just the manufacturing side of uh, the industry, but do you think that all companies within the the industry should be moving towards sustainability um, in in that same sort of way? Like, do you think that every category, kind of top down, uh, can make those moves, or is it? I guess is that just the problem with some of just the technology that we're using in general? <laughs> Well, I mean, it's quite clear the path the world is taking. If you're not focused on being part of the future, uh, you're not going to be there. So if if you want to continue to do your business or evolve, I, I would have that focus. And you can see that also, you know, as, as an example, we are focused on reducing plastic and CO2 pollution. So if you look at plastic pollution, the biggest polluter is the tires, which is made from maybe 70% plastics. But the biggest tire companies today, they are already focused on developing non-plastic tires with you know natural materials. Because they understand, you know, that's where it's heading, even though the world is not really speaking about this yet. Uh yeah. that uh, you know plastic pollution is kind of coming up to the surface now a little bit. People are starting to talk about it. You have some Netflix documentaries. No one is talking about plastic pollution from tires, which is, you know, maybe one of the top three biggest uh, microplastics producers. I mean, a normal car tire uh, loses four kilos uh, during its lifetime before you replace it. And that's four kilos of microplastics that people will be breathing. That's going to go into, you know, uh, the things we grow, whatever. And, And these companies have already understood it. They are working on it right now. Um, even though the world has not really started asking for it. These are huge companies, of course. I mean, we're talking about the biggest ones. But um, I think it's the same for all categories, not only tires or powertrains. It's going to be the same for uh, you know uh, the rest of it. If you have a focus here, it could be that 
the market is not asking for it right now. But if you become the leader in that category, let's say uh, stickers, you know, there are hundreds or maybe thousands of sticker companies within the motocross industry and all of them are made of 100% plastic with uh, adhesives that are normally toxic. So, I mean, if you would today start developing and, and you succeed in developing a natural sticker you know no one is asking for that today that's for sure mm. but if you become the leader here today once the demand is starting to shift you know you're going to be the winner but that's a long-term strategy yeah. it's not a one year maybe that's a five-year strategy so, yeah. but uh, yeah I, w- I would recommend moving in that direction you know th- the winners are always the ones that are creating the future not trying to stop it mm. I mean, look at any industry, you know, car industry, phone industry, music industry. For some reason, a lot of the big corporations are just trying to block the future, but it's not even helping them. You know, they're just getting out a little bit slower. So it's, (laughs) I would change that mindset, which is what we're trying to do. I mean, um, we would like to inspire the big uh, manufacturers to start building electric bikes. Yeah, I always thought uh, that with tear offs, like as a as a young kid racing motocross, and you'd you'd go through these tear offs, and then some some places we went to were on cattle farms, and then they'd have cattle cattle that would like eat the tear offs, and then the the cattle would die. And I was like, <laughs> even yeah. as a young kid, like, why would you not have some kind of biodegradable tear off that you could use at any track, and it's not gonna harm, uh, you know, like if there's livestock or wildlife or anything like that. Um, so yeah, you're right. It's just at yeah. every level there is just these, uh, there's just these, I guess that yeah, technologies that are kind of going backwards instead of forwards. Yeah, I mean, be, and I think that's a great example. The tear off, you know, which is just crazy. You're ripping off a pl- plastic sheet of and just, just plastic you know, single use. It. <laughs> exactly, and it, unfortunately, there I think there are some uh, biodegradable alternatives. But I mean, focus on building the best roll off in the world, and the problem is solved. And uh, yeah. now we have a lot of companies that have developed better roll offs. I mean, if you look back five years ago, there weren't any good roll off. And, and now you have three or four that are pretty good. But uh, it took quite some time. So, but, I, I mean, you could see that 20 years ago. Uh, I mean, mm. when we were kids. So yeah. if, if someone would have got it earlier, I mean, imagine. I mean, even the, the I think Scott was maybe the first one that developed. There was it, um, it's called Prospect or something like that. can't remember. Yeah, okay. A bit wider. Uh, I, I mean, they, they had a huge success with that. Uh, but, I mean, the one that is first and you know ride the wave that you create it's clear so when you have that you have that in plastics as well like all the plastics are now in polypropylene uh, which is you know normal plastic material that's for sure it has to be at some point replaced by a biodegradable material i would be focused on that Uh, if you are producing plastics today you know that's i think you know all the oems are going to move in that direction as well yeah yeah, no. It, it, but we're working yeah, on, like we're said, working on that sense. as well. <clears throat> oh, yeah. so you guys are working on your own, like, uh, I guess not biodegradable, but more like natural plastics? Yeah, biodegradable. Yeah. But not for this uh, first year. I mean, this is for some time in the future, but we want to have uh, uh, same feeling. You know, obviously it has to be flexible. It has to be injection molded. 
but it has to be created from material that's not PP. It has to be uh, uh, biodegradable and non-toxic. Yeah. You know, then we'll see when that happens, but for sure that has to happen. <laughs> so I guess uh, to talk a little bit about, um, I guess, just where you guys are, are at, I guess right now, like what would, what would be, I guess, just the message to the probably hundred thousand plus people that would listen to this, that are interested in like buying, um, a stock or have bought a stock. Like, I guess, where's the company at like right now? Yeah. So we are in, uh, uh, late stages of testing. We're optimizing, uh, from here on, it will be mostly focused on software optimizing. Uh, we are, the main focus right now is the production to make sure that we can deliver your bike in time. Uh, there is a slight risk. We will be a little bit late. We will do everything we can to not be late, but uh, uh, I, I hope we succeed with that. But, you know, we might be one or two months late. That that could happen. And I hope people will be okay with that. Um, if that's the case, um, we are improving the bike a little bit more than what we have communicated. So the final weight will be a little bit lower than what we have said, uh, which is uh, nice. It might be the lightest 450. Uh, well, not 450 compared to 450s might be the lightest bike in the world, <clears throat> including fuel, if you just assume the others. Yeah. Um, and um, there are two surprises coming with the bike that you don't know that you will get which is nice yeah okay 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 so <laughs> uh so was there you guys bought all of the motorcycles all of the current 450s and then you guys had everything like flex tested and, and i'm sure you had uh sebastian riding everything and giving the characteristics was there anything from a i guess an engineering standpoint that stuck out to you as kind of bizarre or weird or like, why is this still a thing? Is it just, was there any like big holes in the motorcycle right now that everyone's riding that you're just go, why is this happening like this? Aside from the motor and bit being gas. Uh, well, I mean, if you look at the Alta, it's actually front heavy. So it's, it has, uh, I think it's 51 percent front heavy which is a little bit surprising and it basically doesn't squat which you can feel when you ride it of course as well but uh, uh, so we analyzed that that bike as well to understand the chassis and everything and um, then looking at the gas bikes it was very interesting to look at the flex of the chassis because we measured that uh, in the lab so the lateral horizontal and torsional flex and um yeah, I mean, it's not so surprising. I mean, it's very, very similar on, on the bikes. You, you know, people say, you know, aluminium frames versus steel is different, but it's not so different, actually, when we measured it. They're quite close. The torsional flex of the KTM is uh, has a bit of an S-curve, so that's a bit strange. Uh, maybe they fixed that with the latest generation. We haven't... Uh, we haven't analyzed that bike. Um, what, what would that mean but, in a real world kind of scenario, like an S curve in that in the flex like that? What would you think that that translated yeah, I mean, to ride wise? 
Well, I mean, a rider like me, amateur, would never feel the difference, obviously. But <laughs> if you're a yeah. super good rider, uh, maybe it could feel a little bit unpredictable because it's not, you know, like a dynamic curve, mm. Um, mm. possibly. Uh, but uh, besides that, um, it's they are incredibly similar, I would say. I mean, just looking at the ergonomics, the geometry of all the bikes, it's not a big difference. Mm. Um, I mean, there are obvious things everyone knows. I mean, suspension, Japanese suspension works much better according to our testing. Uh, I think, um, well, I mean, there's things that everyone knows. So it's not really anything else. Personally, I think the KTM motor works better than others but it's not uh, so relevant perhaps for us um yeah. I, I don't know what's 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 there um because i guess I it's, know, there's not, not many really, people uh, that would be i guess tearing a bike apart and analyzing it in the way that that you guys are and to know that uh you've got i'm, I'm sorry i forgot his name but you've got the basically the shazzy genius um yeah, yeah, so I mean, for him to be able to have all of these current models, like, it'd be very interesting to to maybe even hear his thoughts on like, is is he there going like, what the fuck are these people doing, or is it like, oh, these these companies have produced some great motorcycles? Because it's it's interesting to me because I mean, you can talk to guys that think that the 08 CRF 450 is the best feeling chassis or the 2012 and then Kate uh, Cowie's running that same those same chassis numbers from the 08 Honda so I mean we've kind of been playing in this ballpark for a, a really long time and I mean the ability is not even really there to change the flex characteristics because it's like this monocoque frame that's been you know once it's done it's done and I mean you can change flex with some uh you know torque settings on bolts and different materials for engine mounts but that's really it um so i mean to have somebody like that that is you know wrote literally wrote the book on um chassis geometry and flex i mean just interesting to know like oh did we even get it right at this point yeah i mean it's it's super interesting i mean i think it's you know if you want to build a really good product you should always base it upon data and then you know you take it from the data and the drawing board to when you think you have done it right then you test it uh, with a rider you know if the feeling matching what we expected with the data and if it doesn't you know then you have done a mistake in the data uh, so that's that's what i really believe is the right but i think all big manufacturers are probably working like this i mean of course, they are analyzing, you know, the competition, you know, in, in great detail, etc. But I, I think the future, like the motocross segment, is quite interesting. That there's only one price level of the bikes, so all the bikes are the same. If you look at bicycle, you can buy a bike for, you know, hundred dollars yes. or twenty thousand yeah. dollars. So it's a huge span in performance and price. But within motocross, there's one. Now there's two in some of the bikes where you get, you know, different exhaust or something like that. Um, but I think there's a but huge they've gone up, possibility. They've never gone down. No, no, no. You know, could be argued that maybe lately, you know, some manufacturers are more focused on high margin than performance. But um, yeah, uh, I think there is a possibility in using more high grade materials to improve the performance of the bikes, reduce the weight, for instance. I mean. 
the bikes now are built in, you know, you know, four to six thousand series aluminium. And <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Maybe no, no. And I mean, like twenty-five chromoly steel, uh, which is very, very basic. So I think yeah. um, a lot can be done with. Uh, you know titanium or higher grade aluminium and then things like that in order to improve the performance and reduce the weight in the future and maybe there is room for more price levels i think you know many people are spending several thousands on you know equipping their bike with stuff you know why is no one building a bike that's up to their standards from the start yeah so you got you're thinking almost like specialized s works kind of stuff and i mean i guess uh cowie's kind of done it a little bit with their sl or sr and then you've got the husky they do the factory edition and then the honda just did the works edition i mean it's marginal though like the price difference isn't that much different i mean how far are you because let's say if you go to mountain biking and s works you can buy like a stump jumper uh, for you know four thousand dollars and then the s works version of that same stump jump is probably worth like 16 17 i mean some of the road cycle bikes are 20 plus thousand dollars so i mean in your mind like are you seeing this as like a you could really go up in price or do you have any of the range in mind or well i mean no we don't really have a plan for it but i think it's uh, you know if there's a uh... $11,000 euro bike right now, I think there is space for one that could be 20. I mean, if you're paying 20,000 mm. for a bicycle, why wouldn't you pay 20 for a motocross Dude, bike? I with, you know, titanium. <laughs> That's four kilos lighter, you know, uh, titanium frame, uh, shafts, stuff like that. It's possible. I knew I liked you, Antonio. Uh, Sorry, <laughs> I said I knew I liked you. <laughs> no, but I mean, why not? I mean, a kit uh, suspension and uh, a, a bunch of titanium. Who doesn't want that? Everyone wants that, of course. Every Fantastic. single vet rider right now <laughs> is just like, sign me up, daddy. But I mean, this this kind of like this is a cool conversation to have. Like, there's really, again, I think it just speaks to the direction that this could go. You know, like everyone everyone is going kind of like race to the bottom you know like how cheap can you make this how cheap can you do this part how can you copy this part and sell it as this brand it's sort of it really does seem like there's a lot of you know race to the bottom type stuff going on when it comes to the the industry and you know it, it's a completely different ethos in other sports just like cycling you know there's guys that are they're so pumped to be the doctor or the lawyer that's got the $27,000 motorcycle, uh, sorry, uh, S-Works bike that he's, you know, taken up to the hill. And li literally no one's having that conversation in moto. It's like, how cheap can you make it? Yeah, yeah. And I mean, there's... So, I mean, motocross guys are super passionate. I mean, uh, all my friends, they buy everything that they can, you know, because yeah. it's their biggest passion. So it's a bit strange that you don't have that possibility. What do you think, uh, you know, what is the future of motocross? Do you see any other, like, do you have any dream of, uh, you know, why is no one doing this in terms of uh, technical development of the bikes? What do you think? Honestly, like, 
the I I think that the bikes can be so much better in terms of the ergonomics, and I've always dreamed of having a different way to use the throttle because, like, I just think that essentially you should be in one body position the entire time that you ride. I don't think that you should have to move your hands that much. You definitely shouldn't have to move your feet that much. I think that you should just be able to like hold on to the bike and go. So I think that the foot brake is something that is like pointless and that needs to go. And then I think that that with no clutch that goes up on the handlebars, which I think that's a no brainer, like exactly what you said. And there's got to be something, you know, better with the the throttle as well because you know you think about the position that you're in on a on a dirt bike like there's a there's a biomechanically correct position that gives you the most access to the most muscle groups activated in the optimal way so it's like for me that doesn't happen when you do this and that I think that there's just so much like kind of room for fuckery that, that goes on. And so you're doing this at the same time as you're doing this and then you're doing this. Like, I just think that all that shit needs to go out of the window and it's like you just get in one position and then you just don't really have to move. So whatever that you can do to kind of facilitate uh, that being the thing. And then, and then I think that uh, it makes it to where so many more people can ride like my girlfriend right now she can ride a scooter like she can ride a a little you know step through kind of scooter that should be it, it should be that easy to go like oh so if you can ride a scooter then you could ride a motocross bike there is no way in hell that i would put her on a motocross bike and you know like unless you want to kill her yeah easy way to get out of that if, if that if it needs to come to that. but you know i think that it, it really should be that that easy and it's like i think that what you guys are doing uh with the stark phone and the stark app to where you you just have like a custom preset it's like oh this is my girlfriend's mode bang and then you can have one click on the app and it's like this is set for her right now and she gets on because like when you're a kid on a peewee did you ever have your dad screw in like the throttle so that the throttle couldn't turn all the way because that that was like my I was, <laughs> oh, it's like the first time i rode a bike i was four years old and my dad screwed yeah. the throttle in so that the throttle could only turn like a quarter of a way so it's like essentially that's a mechanical that's a mechanically bad version of what you guys can do now with just you know yeah. one button this is the wife preset and then you've got your front brake back brake no brainer you've got 12 percent power uh and off you go so i mean i think for me like that that's always something that i thought about is like you just need to get a bike to the point where you can just be in like one position and then you don't have to move you don't have to move your feet you don't have to move and then i think that um i think that there's almost like no help in terms of like where you should be on a motorcycle and i really think that there's like a some really easy ways that you could almost just put in like these tiny little uh like like recesses and protrusions in bikes that would almost like guide you into the correct position. Cause I think that's the thing that I see so in so many, like every time I go to the track, I just see people that they're not enjoying riding a motorcycle because they, they don't know how to fucking 
put their feet on the motorcycle. They don't know how far forward is too far forward with their knees, how far back is too far back. So there's some little things that I think could be implemented into a, a bike that would just make it almost like training wheels for putting your body in the kind of correct position. Because honestly, once you do that, um, yeah, I think that riding just becomes so much easier. And I mean, yeah, now that I think about it, like there's, fuck, there's so many ways that I think you could, with your bike, you could incorporate, um, I guess, like guides of like how to actually be on the motorcycle. That's very interesting. I mean, I think, <clears throat> I think a huge leap forward could be held sub display because uh, that can give you so much more information. I, so I mean, too. even if we have, yeah. even if we have the display down at the bar pad, you are not gonna look down and focus on that when you're going through a motocross track. You can glance down, you know, and see which uh, ride mode you're in, or you know, potentially quickly see the speed if you want to know that. But or battery level. But uh, if you have it proper heads up display i mean you can give the rider real-time information you maybe you can even create like gamification you know like suggest line choices on the track uh, create like yeah. uh <laughs> you know you could make fun stuff like create a coin in the jump jump and get this coin you know you could do stuff yeah, like, yeah. That, like mario kart you know uh i don't know about the throttle how you would do that Maybe we can create like a autopilot. Uh, we take a fast rider and we just, if you don't gas, you just hang on. <laughs> yeah, I, don't <laughs> I think, think that's a horrible I idea. <laughs> I don't think that's the move. Yeah, the, the throttle, oh, the throttle one good. is a hard one. I mean, in, in four wheelers and quads, they do like the thumb throttle. Um, and I mean, I know there's, I actually know there is a company that does do a thumb throttle for like KTMs and stuff like that. So there is there is a company that does it. I've ridden a bunch of quads and stuff before. It doesn't really feel like a backward step, but I just think that, I mean, for example, like we're doing that Fink Desert race in June this year. And it's like, I just want to be locked in one position. Like I want to be able to, <clears throat> in those races, you have steg pegs that are uh, connected onto the frame and you actually, it stops your legs from going back because you're just wide open <clears throat> for so long. So, I mean, I've, I kind of wonder why you can't make these kind of like protrusions that come out of somewhere on the bike. That's like a real, just a slot. So, you know, okay, my knees are back because the correct anatomical position, if you watch Jet Lawrence, Chase Sexton, all these guys, their knee line, it does not go in front of the arch of their foot very often. So you've kind of, it's always, um, it's always straight up and down or a little bit backwards. And so if you've got something that is, there's like some tiny little guide there so that you know that when you're in a standing position that you slide back into those, it locks you in, but it's not inhibiting movement in any way. Like I think that the, they're some of the things that can really just like help kind of riders going forward but yeah it's like for that desert race it's like you put those steg pegs on the bike you're locked in you know that's where you need to be and then if you have like a thumb throttle then you're just locked in there's no side to side because if you're here like you imagine doing a bench press like essentially you're in a bench press position when you're racing a motocross bike yeah. right so can you imagine then you've got let's say you've got a 25 kilo plate a 25 kilo plate you're laying on the bench and then you you get to the top of your bench press and then you drop this elbow down and then you try and do the bench press 
by with oh, this yeah. elbow dropped out. That's what you're doing with the throttle. So it's not, you yeah. know, it's not exaggerating. A lot of guys aren't doing that, but there is this motion that is in the wrist. You can see any, uh, any start of a race where you're going from like zero throttle to a hundred percent throttle, then you're getting that motion. And then you'll see a lot of guys are like adjusting constantly with their body. Um, so I think that there is kind of might sound like a stupid idea and one of those things like, well, this is how we've always done it. But I really think that just being able to get on a motorcycle and stay in the correct anatomical position that gives you the most stability. It's like, it makes sense that you don't really want to leave that position very often. And I think you guys are kind of halfway there by having the the rear brake option on the left hand. That's super interesting. I mean, I, I'm trying to think. I mean, throttle today, you have the twist throttle, you have the thumb. Some snowmobiles have like a finger throttle. I yeah, okay. Should be... That- played around with but i mean play, finger would be difficult since you have the rear brake there then you have double levers it gets very messy i don't think that's perhaps yeah i wonder if there's like a no, like a slider <laughs> like a slider kind of thing that you could have that's like a sensor like a i don't know like a sliding type of deal <laughs> yeah get we're getting we're getting out there but <laughs> but so, something that i really believe it's gonna happen though that's more straightforward but is uh digital uh, suspension and most likely i would say digital air suspension because yeah okay you know how many people have the perfectly adapted suspension for their riding very few and i mean it also depends on which track you're at yeah zero and so you should be able to develop a suspension which you can adapt digitally or maybe even by ai you don't have to adapt it at all it feels where you're riding and how you're riding that yeah. that should not be too far away i mean now to change your suspension settings you have to rebuild it takes you know hours it's crazy it has to be changed As, are you it's a bit like are rebuilding you looking at, yeah same thing <laughs> are, are you looking at uh because i know that ducati does uh electronic suspension uh i think on their like v4r or like some of their more expensive models are you looking at uh companies like that that are kind of already dabbling in some of this uh technology no we have not started uh, looking into that yet but i think it's the future then then how it's gonna happen and uh, you know how we will see but for sure it has to happen i mean i think with the powertrain going to electric, that's a huge revolution. I would say the next huge revolution would be the suspension adapting uh, in a much easier way to how you're riding. And perhaps even lighter also because it's quite heavy today. Yeah, and and then does that become more of a hardware issue or a software issue because now we're really starting to to, we're we're starting to blur the lines for the first time in motocross to where or i guess just two wheels i guess off-road two wheels where it's like there's hardware challenges but there's also software challenges and sometimes a software challenge can actually override the hardware challenge and we're, we're going from there's a big shift that's going to happen just of the personnel that are working on these bikes because it was like yourself, you just started as a mechanic. You're this mechanically minded person uh, that is now, you know, that that's like the backbone of this industry and its existing format. But now we're going to be going to this platform where it's like the, the software engineers are, are going to, you know, kind of replace or I guess add on a whole nother uh, group of people that are going to be working on these these bikes from going forward 
Yeah, I mean, you have to make it a software challenge because you need to get rid of all the hardware because, you know, if you need hardware to make uh, change your settings on the suspension, you're not fixing the problem because, I mean, it's it's like a new solution needs to be better, I think, in every aspect. You cannot just improve one little thing and then the other thing is getting worse. So it needs to be lighter. It needs to obviously work better. It needs to be adaptable only through a click in your display or yeah. completely automatic. And uh, for that to happen, it needs to be a software issue. So probably the easiest way would make digital air suspension because the problem with air suspension today is that air changes density so much with uh, altitude or temperature. So, uh, and it's actually a similar problem in tires. Uh, so, I mean, you need to readjust the pressure in your forks all the time, which is ridiculous. No one wants to do that or, you know, will do it. So, but if you can and remove you, that and problem- And you can't with, in the uh, middle of a, a moto. No, I mean, you have to decide like, okay, I will set up for a hot suspension. And then when I go out, it's going to be uh, uh, too soft okay which is you know crazy same with tires you know you go out with a specific pressure and the temperature increases 30 celsius is going to change the pressure inside the tires so uh you have to make it digital i think and so with the the software side of things i can imagine that's probably one of the most fun parts of this whole deal is that there's because I mean, obviously you've ridden the bike, like to go from the maximum power to like really dumbing it down. Like when you really get into the settings, like how noticeable is it? And is that like a really fun part of the process for you is to like build on these software features? Yeah, I'm not so involved in the software development it's very much done by uh, the software engineers and uh, sebastian uh, so uh, I, I can't say that i have really experienced those changes so much and uh, uh, we're still quite early on in our soft so software development uh, so um, testing different ride modes and, and stuff like that so uh, i think that is we know exactly you know what, what we can do and we have tested obviously different power levels but uh, um it's still a little bit early. This is the main focus for the next months is to you know evolve all of that and develop uh, the full functionality of the software uh, with uh, you know the different. Uh, uh, so we we have made adjustments, but now it's done directly in the code. So it's not really we're not. There's no making UI the changes there. now. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So it's so that's gonna come you know i think within the next month we're we're gonna move over um to that of course still optimizing the code in the background but uh uh so now they they are changing the power through a phone but it's in the software directly so it's it's still a bit too early for like experiencing that in in the best possible way but yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. It's, i mean we have, I mean, it's, it's very cool from the aspect that, you know, Seb is coming in and saying that, you know, I want it to be a little bit more responsive or more engine braking or whatever. And within one minute, uh, they have changed it. So, uh, yeah, it's it's there. It's the only thing is the UI is, you know, it's going to be a different level when you can just drag with your finger and it, you know, it happens immediately. So, well, do you think that'll be ready for the, the media testing? Uh, hopefully hopefully I think that'll uh, be massive yeah 
Yeah, yeah. So um, you're coming for the the media testing. Uh, I I yeah. think you're you booked. Yeah. So yeah, uh, that's my plan. That's gonna be so nice to to get your first impression of riding the bike. I hope we will have it uh, working till then. That's the plan. Um, but uh, we're not there yet, so we we have to see. So, <clears throat> I guess that's a good segue into just the development process so i mean how much right now of the development of the bike is spent with seb on the bike and riders on the bike versus how much is being done in the lab essentially i mean when it comes to testing that is you know mostly done at the track uh right now um but then you know of course you know, all the engineers are working on changing your one component from CNC manufacturing to casting it. So you're adding, uh, you know, uh, a few changes uh, to, to every drawing flat. But from testing, it's mainly done at the track right now. So, so how many, I guess, what's a day of testing look like when it goes to the track? Like, are you guys, uh, able to have you got like multiple bikes and then you've got seb like is he out there are you to the point where it's like you guys can just ride and ride and you've got multiple units and charging and it's like quite an active process because i could see it being early days when there's like one working model and a, you know small like crew you know has it evolved since there to where it's like you guys are really able to put a bunch of laps on these things nowadays or yeah, but it's really changing depending on what kind of testing we're doing. So we're adapting the testing quite a lot based on that. So right now they are doing some <clears throat> some frame testing. Uh, so we are just confirming exactly how the frame is working. So it's pretty cool. We have two sensors or more than two, but we have sensors on the, the frame tubes, which have a ridiculous sensitivity. So if you take the top frame tube, you know, and you press it with your fingers. Like if you press a steel tube, nothing is going to happen. These sensors show how the how it's flexing, because <laughs> and insane. it's so little. You could, yeah. I mean, this is a thick steel tube. Like it's not flexing, but you know the sensitivity is so ridiculously high. So that's you know th- we're doing that now. And then when we're doing the suspension testing, defining all these different settings, we have seven different suspension settings based upon your weight. You know, that's a different kind where we're bringing in riders in different weight classes and doing uh, riding, of course, uh, you know, from uh, 65 to 100 kilos. Uh, so, yeah, it really adapts to the kind of testing that we're doing. But, um, yeah. It, it must it's just be. It's pretty cool. A, these, a, uh, these sensors. Yeah, it must just so be a cool process. Yeah. Yeah, I know. It's. Like seeing on a screen, imagine you're pressing a steel tube and the screen is showing when you're pressing it. Like that's high level of sensitivity. It's insane. And, and so are you, in your mind, like just as the, you know, or a creator, like essentially you're like a, a, you're creating this thing from nothing. Like this has been in your mind for years. How far ahead are you in your mind? as to where you are right now. Like for me with the podcast, we're in this situation. This is what's real. This is what's actually happening. That's what people are seeing right now. But in my head, I'm like, I'm fucking years down the track. I've got so many ideas and there's so much that 
I think can be implemented and, you know, different things that I want to do and goals that I want to reach. And, and it's based off shit that's actually real right now. So it's not all just pipe dreams. So what's that look like in your head? I need to be careful here because you will think I'm completely crazy if I tell you everything. I will not. (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, well, uh, first we're going to make Stark the market leader in motocross. That's going to happen quite fast. Uh, Second ambition is to sell a million motorcycles per year. Uh, That will take a few years. while doing that we will be focused on technical development we are a technology company this is the focus so we might be supplying technology to other companies um so we'll do that in parallel maybe even outside motorcycling um and then i think it's interesting to look like at transport long term you know what's my my biggest goal in life is always to build a flying car because i believe it's the most optimal level of human transport like if you look at it how we're traveling today it's completely ridiculous we're traveling in a 2d network on the surface of the earth which is the roads you know and it's very much restricted to how those roads are being built you have crossings roundabouts and all kinds of you know red lights etc which is making it incredibly inefficient and you're traveling at a quite slow speed and it's still very dangerous so it's just it's not really a good system but you know, if you could travel in 3D, which means you could use different altitude layers, uh, I wouldn't go down in the earth because then you're still limited to tunnels. But if you're traveling in the air, you can basically always travel in a straight direction to where you're going from A to Z. You don't need to go to a train station to another train station yeah. and from that station to where you're going. Now you would travel directly where you're going straight and maybe you know, replacing a car, maybe you can travel in 300 kilometers an hour or, um, you know, what would that be? 180 miles per hour. Uh, yeah. In, instead of driving an average of, what's it, 40 miles per hour or 60 kilometers an hour or something like this. So that that would be, the average journey would be about 10 times more efficient and much safer and a much nicer experience because, you know, you could be flying at, say, three to 500 meters altitude, which is, you know, fantastic uh, uh, viewing <laughs> of, of the earth, basically. Yeah. So I think yeah. that 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 is my um, my biggest goal. Uh, but it's not certain that we will do that with Stark because I wouldn't risk the company. So, I mean, we are focused mm. now on motocross. We will be focused on street motorcycles and developing a few different technologies that we are planning to. And, Maybe at some point we build flying cars. That would be uh, the, the real long-term ambition. But uh, yeah, that's that's for sure not certain. <clears throat> so with the expansion of of Stark going forwards, how do you see? Like, do you have any kind of roadmap of like the areas that you think it will kind of expand into? Like, what the logical progression is? Uh, the different categories of vehicles, or yeah and i guess the way in which you you kind of see it making sense um i'm not sure i understand your question correctly but i mean first now we're going into motocross obviously um yeah globally so we are now we're building up a dealer network we want to work with the best dealers in the world we're building up that dealer network now so 
that when we launch our future motorcycles, you know, we can do that together with our dealers and be, you know, locally available all over the world. This is the plan. So uh, I think we have 700 dealer requests right now and we have maybe signed contracts with 40 dealers or so across the world. Really? So this is a huge part of, of building that. Yeah, so we will have a few hundreds uh, or maybe a couple of thousand dealers across the world in a few years. And uh, next bike to launch uh, will be the Enduro model that will come a bit in the future. Uh, same bike, but with lights, uh, slightly adaptions, of course, but very similar to, to the VAR. Uh, then we will develop, we have started the development of three street bikes. Really? Yeah. That's awesome. And so, that's and so what... Yeah. So what, uh, I guess, what style, like, is it same thing? Like you go into like the racing side of things first, like a similar mindset or? Well, it's the same mindset that when we launch each vehicle, we have to believe it's the, the leader in each category, that it's the best vehicle for that category. And, you know, motocross is so much performance. Other categories you know other things will matter more we still want to be performance leader but it could be that you know comfort convenience uh is also super important um so it's going to depend on which category but each vehicle that we launch our ambition is that it should be the best bike in that category including all gas bikes uh and uh, we are very design focused so we want to build uh, I mean, beautiful motorcycles, beautiful objects that are not just, you know, if you look at motorcycling today, it's, I think, very immature design with everything is very sci-fi. There are angles all over the plates, place. Uh, it's graphics that are very aggressive. It looks like kids' toys, all of it. And it's all yeah. incredibly plastic. Like everything you touch is plastic. It's like very cheap solutions that are not well integrated. Uh, so we want to, also elevate the level of the quality impression and the design, the feeling surrounding motorcycles. We want to make beautiful objects that are not only cool to the nerds, but cool and beautiful to any person that would see it. I mean, if you would look at it like, if you show a Ferrari to 100 people, 98 yeah. of those will say, wow, that's a beautiful product, you know, because it is. 100%. It's really beautiful. Yeah. But if you show... Um, Yamaha R1 to a normal person and you say what do you think they don't even know how to respond because they the motorcycle industry is yeah exactly it's just it's it's a mess it's, you know it's, it's it looks like a, a toy for a kid uh, and we would like to develop and you know beautiful motorcycles beautiful objects uh, that you know anyone would you know appreciate and and like then so that will also be a focus of course and increase perhaps the quality impression uh, our ambition is to use less plastics which will also elevate the quality impression of the bike i mean everything you touch today on a street motorcycle or motocross feels super cheap i mean just the buttons yeah. on the handlebar the throttle uh whatever it is it it is not a nice quality standard so we want to elevate that as well that's our ambition it's so funny that you said that uh about like the using a ferrari versus r1 man i feel like uh 
you, you want to talk about, I guess, just like what's like the fundamental properties of the universe, like just to take it that far, right? Quality. Quality is a fundamental property. If you take away language, concepts, understanding, scientific knowledge, scientific method, if you if you just strip back everything in the universe quality experience or like a quality visual a quality taste a quality smell like there just is this like zero and one uh property of the universe to where it's like zero is bad one is good you know you put your hand on a hot stove that's not a quality experience you take a a photo of a person's face and the face is not in focus and then you show a person a photo where the face is in focus you don't need to know about focus you don't need to know about cameras you don't you don't need to know about anything quality is just super super obvious and i think that man sometimes i just think people genuinely forget that that's a thing and you know it's like a you watch a beautiful cinematic movie there's not one time during that movie where the camera is out of focus unless it's by design and you don't notice yeah. everyone just goes along about their day without even noticing that there's some immaculately skilled focus puller that is like tracking this person's eye so it stays insanely sharp on this $70,000 lens. That's quality and people just brush over it. You know, it's like completely uh, this this like forgotten uh, part of life. But I think that what you're saying just speaks so much to like quality should just be so overwhelmingly obvious that it like almost gets kind of looked over, you know? Yeah. I think that's a really good explanation. So I hope you can get a little bit of that sensation when you come uh, during the media days and, and try the bike. Yeah, and I, <laughs> it, it, it does it does look like that. I mean, even down to like I said before about the triple clamps and and the the integration of the uh, of the chain adjuster. Like I, I think it is obvious that that is part of the mission for you guys. Thank you. That's really appreciated. They have a hardworking team on that. Yeah, definitely. And so what's like, I guess, your day-to-day looking like as a guy that runs this company? Because, I mean, it's, I, I guess, just aside from the, but yeah, like the bike itself, I mean, I've never got the chance to talk talk to somebody that's in the position that you're in of like running this kind of business, developing this product, bringing this kind of product to market. And I mean, actually to sidebar, even before that, um, before we get into that conversation, is there any part of you that thought it was important to be, uh, to like put a face to this company? Because there's no face to KTM. There's no face to, you know, Honda and those kind of companies. Um, and I personally, I'm a, I think from a business perspective, anytime there's a face to a company, um, I think it really humanizes it. I think it makes the messaging become a lot easier and a lot clearer. Um, so, I mean, is that is that a, something that you guys kind of actively did? You sort of thought that it was maybe going to be beneficial to have a face to this company, maybe before we jump into like the day-to-day running of it? Yeah, uh, I mean, I think that makes sense. So if you're truly proud and if you truly care about what you're doing you know i think you should show your face i mean you should you should not only so 
a lot of people they're only working for a commercial short-term plan they want to build something up and sell it in a few years etc but for me and i think for a lot of people that are involved in a company this is more of a, a lifetime goal it's not a short-term project and something we are extremely proud of what we're doing and i'm very happy to i want to speak about it because um, I'm, I'm proud of it uh, what we're doing and i think it's it makes sense and of course you know you could say that you are you know if, if you are showing your face you know if you fail then you know that's that's you failing it's not a company failing and i think that's that's fine uh, because we're not gonna fail uh and we're gonna you know deliver on our promises uh, and yeah we did discuss that uh, we took we took a decision that you know i i will uh, uh you know show my face as well and uh, i think it makes sense if you are truly passionate about what you're doing i think you know you should should show that uh, i completely agree have have you uh have you ever read skin <laughs> in the game by um nasim taleb i haven't have you heard of it uh i don't can't remember no don't think so uh i'm not sure if you're a big reader but it's a pretty pretty awesome book uh and i think that that was another thing that kind of stuck out to me when you guys launched is that there was a face to the company because it's kind of what you just sort of said there is there's this extra layer of accountability when you're willing to put yourself out there uh, and it not be something that just hides behind the brand name i mean i think you get this these extra points essentially of being able to communicate a specific message, uh, you know, a, a humanizing element to where if you say like, oh, we might be a couple months late. It's like if it's coming from a person that you can sense that they're genuine and that, you know, they're not spending everyone's deposit money in Hawaii and on strippers, <laughs> you know, like, so like you can actually, you can kind of, there's an advantage to that messaging. But then the downside is, is that there's all this extra accountability for that if you fail. Um, so I think it, it also kind of speaks to the, uh, just the overall brand in general, that there is that there's an element of risk taking there that people might not appreciate. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, absolutely. I have spent, uh, two or three years working on this, uh, doing nothing else every waking minute. Um, I'm absolutely not making any money. I'm not taking any salary at all. I'm putting in all my money into this to make it happen because I, uh, I want to do it. And, uh, that's what, you know, the other people are doing as well that are involved, uh, our investors and, our team are, you know, incredibly focused on that. And it's, if you look at the deposits, you know, that's a very small amount. That's not financing our operations. The, the only purpose yeah. of the deposit is to know that it's, it's a confirmed order. Uh, yeah. So that we are planning our production correctly. Because if we let people book orders without the deposit, you know, we don't know if it's real orders. Yeah. So, I mean, we are building a huge factory. We're investing many, many, many millions. So we need to know that it's real orders. That's the purpose of the deposit. And uh, uh, it's, it's, we are financing it. And so, But I think you know, $100 is, makes sense. No one wants to give away $100. So I, I think people are making an order. They are committed to completing the purchase. Yeah. Uh, but at the same time, you know, it, it's, it's an amount that, you know, you, you can't put down it's not changing your economy you know it's not something so it's makes sense like yeah 
yeah um so yeah so, i guess to your your like day-to-day of of like running the company so i guess what's what are those days kind of look like with you and and where does most of your energy go to kind of getting this project off the ground well i mean this is a 24-hour business so every waking minute uh is, is working either you know you wake up and you work from home and then you go into the office you're there for 12 hours working hard and i ha- i mean everyone in the team is so dedicated so it's really fantastic to see that this is not you know not just me it's everyone in the company is dedicating you know all all their time to making this because they they believe in the project and um, so my majority of my time is um um spent um well focused on the production um working with our suppliers uh planning internally um building the organization this year we are recruiting maybe 80 people uh so it's starting that process you know it's quite a lot of work we we need to build all of these departments uh, a month ago we didn't have a sales department okay now we have a sales department we have a sales director and we have you know sales managers in uk france italy um we have jeff managing australia new zealand and we have, uh, you know, the rest of it coming. Uh, we're expanding our engineering uh, and design departments so that we can, you know, not only develop one bike, but we can. You know, now we have started developing yeah, three bikes, but yeah. you know, fully around those projects. So it's very much connected to the. I would say the majority of my time is the production and working with our suppliers to make sure that we receive all these components in time. It's. Yeah. Uh, it's very challenging also now within the electronics industry. We Thankfully, we have confirmed orders already a year ago uh, with uh, uh, you know, all the different electronics uh, components that goes into the bike. Since we're developing you know, everything from, from the ground up, we're buying every single little ship. Uh, you know, so that's it's a quite massive uh, process. Um, yeah, and I mean, then... Um, uh, we're spending time on development, you know, which directions to take and, and so on. And uh, also planning the future. Uh, but we have some cool stuff to show. I think, you know, in quite short term time, we can also show a couple of things that are included with the bike that we didn't show before that I think would be very nice uh, for the, the people that decided to buy the bike, that it's just elevating the experience a little bit more. Now, <clears throat> uh, so yeah, it's, it's, it's hard to say. I mean, it's, it's a, I'm in meetings every single minute, basically from nine till eight every day, and, and then outside those hours you're working. But uh, yeah, it's it's an extreme, extremely tense period right now, where yeah, you know, you cannot. It's a bit like I think like a if you're working very hard towards a goal as an athlete or something like you need to do everything yeah. perfectly you need to make sure that you sleep you need to make sure that you eat yeah. you cannot drink alcohol like because it's such a focus your brain has to work perfectly all the time because otherwise you will make mistakes and then that will delay the project and we can't have that so uh, it's an extremely intense period with uh, very very long days with uh, an incredible focus but it's from everyone I think so that's and really, and so, but the hardest thing for us right now is production. 
Yeah, and so I guess, did you feel this level of? I guess this is just speaking personally, because um, I mean, I just I've got a couple of friends that I've got that have kind of got this similar. You're doing it on a pretty high level, and this is I guess just the level of uh, pieces that are being moved around and the money and the the issues that could kind of come from a fuck up essentially. So, I mean, there'd be a lot of pressure on you. Um, But I mean, I think that anyone that's like really in their business, like this for me is a 24 hour a day thing. And, you know, I mean, there's been some philosophy changes in my life over the last kind of three years, two to three years when this starts doing better. Like you've almost got to mold yourself as a person to facilitate like the growth of the business, you know? So, I mean, this, this type of stuff is like super interesting to me because I guess I'm always in that same process of like what you said, like, all right, (laughs) sleeping and you know, like I, I don't drink, I don't party. There's, there's all this shit I don't do. And then there's all this stuff I do do. Like to me, I do uh, like martial arts. That's a non-negotiable for me. Like I have to do that every day. I have to read every day. I have to meditate every day. Like I've kind of eliminated a bunch of things in my life and then tried to just go all in on like a select few verticals that are then in the, I guess the in an effort to make the product better, you know? So it seems like, yeah. well, I mean, without even knowing you, like that has to be what you're doing to be pulling off the company that you're pulling off. Yeah, I'm very extreme as a person. So I'm, I understand exactly what you're saying. And I think you can see that also with your podcast that you have created, you know, it's a in- very high level of quality and you're elevating and I think the industry in that perspective. So, you know, you're doing what's needed and it's also working. So that's always cool to see that happening. And I mean, I for me, that. I, I run 5k every morning, every single morning, because otherwise my, my, my brain doesn't work properly. It's a huge difference for me mentally. If I'm exercising, especially running, um, then I have, a a nutritionist <laughs> so i'm quite so like i have specific supplements and the food that i'm eating uh you know to make sure that you're optimized because it makes a huge difference actually and uh, yeah that i'm working super hard and when you're doing that i cannot fall asleep if i don't do breathing exercises so uh, me and my girlfriend are doing breathing exercises every evening and then we fall asleep because otherwise the brain never stops spinning and then you can't yeah, sleep okay. and then you're fucked the next day. So it's like, you know, you need to do the right things. I also do cold cold bath after, after every run. So that's... Um, yeah, that's okay. Very nice. So nice to clear your mind. Do you do, you, uh, do you do any meditation at all? That's I'm guessing that's well, kind of what the breathing, breathing stuff is in a way, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I think that's the kind of meditation. I would say that it's a ten-minute thing. Super nice. Yeah. Okay. And um, and so, like, I, what's I your? Oh, sorry. Keep going. No. Um. I mean, no. It's just I think it's the same thing as meditation. For me, it's just like I don't have any patience. So, like, I tried to do a yoga class once, and wait, it's not for me. I can't do it. I have. You know, <laughs> I have too many, uh, too much energy. Can't do it. But the breathing exercise works incredibly well for me. Very straightforward. And, and what kind of breathing exercise is it? Like a Wim Hof type thing, or is it? Yeah, yeah, Wim Hof. So he yeah, has okay, like a cool. eleven-minute program. 
you're breathing fast, you're holding your breath and things like that. Works super yeah. well for me. And then and so you're the pretty much asleep by the end death. of it? Yeah, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah, I, Works um, really well. I, I normally, um, I pretty much meditate every night before bed. I just do it in bed. I try and do one every morning where i'm like it's actually sitting like you'd call it like a more formal practice of it um and i'll do that in the morning and i always i always feel a bit more just like ready for a day of work if that makes sense like i just feel like it's a bit of a fresh start if i don't meditate and i just walk out the door i feel like there's already momentum going and it could be good it could be bad like you just there's not that much control so i feel like that's a probably similar to your run you know and i feel like reading does that same thing for me as well I like to read in the mornings and then i'll do that um but yeah i've actually recently been listening to they've just added uh this this lady she's actually an like a, a nun at a like a monastery um and she reads all these like classic dharma texts from like the buddha and a bunch of uh like Dharimpu rinpoche and like all these kind of nepalese like masters of meditation and uh they just actually added that so that's like been my new thing of uh listening to these they're like 20 minute sort of deals and i cannot finish one i'm i'm out every night because sleep has actually been a huge challenge for me my entire life just like literally can't sleep so that's actually been yeah. something that is bang i'm gone i think sleeping is a superpower like people that can fall asleep in strange situations i'm so jealous yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah. like in a car or something or in a plane like i cannot i wish it's like if i could have one superpower sleeping whenever i wanted for sure <clears throat> <laughs> do you uh do you track your sleep at all uh no i have done it in the past i'm not doing it right now and you oh track your sleep honestly it's like that's been the i I read a book um called why we sleep uh by matthew walker it's pretty famous book on sleep um but it was brilliant and i was always the kind of guy that uh i'd say i was like never a morning person and i always would kind of stay up late working and then i just kind of I'd wake up at, you know, like eight o'clock, nine o'clock. And then I just sort of found I couldn't really get enough shit done. So I was like, I really need to start waking up at 5am if I want to like actually get some stuff done, um, which meant I had to go to sleep. Uh, well, I kept going to sleep at the same time. And then I was like, this just isn't working. So I had to sort of get it back. But I read this book, completely changed my mind. I basically committed to eight hours sleep um, for probably the last two and a half years. And like I was just overseas in Bali and there's a two hour time difference. And uh, I basically woke up at 3 a.m. every single day that I was in Bali because I'd been so used to waking up at 5 a.m. for the last two and a half years. But um, I do the wow. Garmin... I do like the Garmin thing now. So I've got the watch. I just keep that on when I sleep. And it basically will tell you uh, the amount of deep sleep, light sleep, REM sleep, and the amount of time that you spend awake. Um, And I actually, when I first got the watch, I wasn't getting as much deep sleep. So then I started taking some supplements to make sure, because there's windows of what 
what sleep cycle you should be getting at what period of time. Um, so yeah, I found out that I wasn't getting as much deep sleep. So then I started taking a supplement and then the deep sleep improved. And yeah, it's like every day you get a sleep score when you wake up. So you can kind of tell, um, it goes off like your sleep and heart rate and then heart rate variability as well so like every day you get like this body battery score and there'll be times where i just didn't sleep good enough to recover fully from the day and then if i've got like a hard training plan i'll scale it back so you're kind of always able to monitor your uh i guess just like energy and recovery levels and stuff like that so if you if you want to go full cool. nerd yeah, it's a pretty uh, it's I, a pretty cool that's Maybe I have to get that watch. I have the Apple Watch right now. I don't know if that has the same functionality, but uh, sounds I like something that makes the, a lot of sense. I think the heart rate variability is the main thing because it's that's essentially the. So I, I'm, I know that the Apple Watch does your heart rate, but I don't think it measures the timing in between each heart rate. Um, oh, the other thing these things do, not to make it a Garmin ad, um, but they have like a stress indicator that's based off your um, all of those kind of things in conjunction as well. And I remember there was one night when I first got it, I actually... I was driving, I actually just smoke weed too. Um, and then I got like that anxiety, like that weed anxiety. And I was like, I was like, fuck, this would be a good time to check the watch. And I like literally had like the highest stress. So it actually matched up with what I physically felt anxiety. But it's been cool, like through the day while I'm working, it's sort of made me more mindful if I'm, if I am getting in that kind of, you can kind of get flustered or stressed a little bit and it, it's like momentum builds. So it's actually like a good little reminder to just like do some breathing and actually like bring that stress level down. So yeah, anyway, it's been, it's been super cool. So if you're into that kind of stuff, it's uh it's actually pretty, pretty yeah, cool. I am. I am. Yeah, I should. Maybe I'll check that to watch out, see if that makes sense. My uh, nutritionist yeah. bought me um, or asked me to buy one of heart rate monitor does, does the same but it goes around your chest so maybe the watch is a better idea well so yeah <laughs> i've got sure, the, same. the same yeah so i do the um when i like train <laughs> I, I do the heart rate monitor around the the chest um it, it's a little bit more accurate but then it just sends the data back to the watch so essentially like you have it on for 24 hours a day so you can monitor monitor everything but how how long did okay. it like I'm, I'm sure that you started so young in business that you didn't this wasn't your routine like you kind of really grow into these kind of things over time like how long has it taken you to get to like this version of you that gets the right sleep has a nutritionist does the runs does the breathing because it's not it's not easy to build those kind of habits like it takes quite a while yeah, I mean, it took me 10, 12 years to realize it. Yeah. So, uh, you know, because you're, if you're pushing, if you're not pushing yourself too hard, I mean, these things are going to make less of an impact. Like if you have more easy life, but if you're pushing yourself super, super hard physically or mentally or both, this makes a tremendous difference. And I, mean, I guess that's what you, you're talking about as well. But... I had, you know, you have you constantly feel you get, you know, you get uh, memory losses. Uh, you feel when you have bad days, you know, you're not happy with uh, your sharpness or, you know, you have stress that's not going down. You're not able to sleep, all of these things. 
I mean, it's just so obvious that you know, either you fix it or it's going to become a really big problem. So or it'll hinder your growth completely. Stop. Yeah, or or you know, you have to, you know, you can continue. Maybe you can continue working hard, um, but you're going to hit the wall eventually. So, uh, so it's just the way I think to be healthy and uh, also improve your performance. So it's that or backing down a bit. I think is you know, for me, it's like the option. But now if you I find think, a good uh, routine. You, I think uh, it's cool too when you said that you do it with your girlfriend because I think that there's a lot of people out there that would, and it's probably been me in the past, where you'd feel a little bit like self-conscious about trying to get your girlfriend to do like this breathing exercise before (laughs) bed or whatever. So I even think that's like, that shows a pretty solid commitment to, you know, the whole process that you're, you're going on because it's like, all right, babe, we're fucking doing this every night. Like, you know, cause it's hard. That, it's honestly hard to, to kind of do that stuff sometimes. Yeah. But I mean, then it's also a balance. Like, you know, you can take it so to such an extreme, you know, when you're only focused on your health and performance, but then, you know, sometimes you also need to let go. So, uh, you know, I'm not completely sober. I, the only thing is that I know I cannot drink during the week. And then if I have a dinner with some friends on a Saturday or whatever, you know, I'm I'm drinking and I, I know it's negative, but, uh, you know, it's sometimes it could be worth the sacrifice, you know, to also, uh, you know, have a bit of fun. Mm. And so how, like, uh, where does learning come into the picture for you? Like how much are you actively trying to learn new skills or like learn new parts of business like are you i guess like a just a student of the game um in in general because i mean for me like that's one of the things with reading why i love that i'm like i'm always trying to learn new things i think obviously in my business it helps with like having shit to talk about but um but yeah i think that that always kind of feels like important um so i mean is that something that you're kind of focused on as well yeah, I mean, I don't do reading because I don't find the time. I love to read, and I did it a lot in the past, but right now it's not possible. Um, I love to learn. My biggest interest is with uh, technology. So, uh, you know, I love the sessions we have together with our technical teams, with Paul, the rest of the engineering team, and the, the creation team, etc. To just, okay, we have this issue. How are we gonna solve it? And you know, first of all, finding solutions to those things, but also. Uh, understanding new technologies like you know how the power electronics are working that's pretty sophisticated and you know how you can what is how is an inverter built up what are the different components how could you make it better Uh, what are the challenges and and things like that Uh, for me that is the most interesting thing to understand on a deeper level exactly how everything works and how you could make it better because in that that's what matters the most yeah and i i guess like i can see how building the company that you are there'd be so much just to learn internally you know like you 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 i'm sure you'd go home with study material every night to where 
you're coming across terms in meetings that you've never heard before from engineers or, you know, software developers or, you know, machinists. And then, you know, you're kind of having to go home and, you know, read about that particular technology or that particular terminology. Like I could see that you'd actually have so much within your own world that you could kind of be trying to learn, uh, learning the whole time. Yeah, I was um, talking to Christian von Koenigsegg last week. I don't know if you're familiar with the supercar from Sweden. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like the the world's fastest car. They also make uh, electric drivetrains. Now it's hybrids, but uh, I mean, they're quite folk. I mean, they are super innovative. And I mean, I I think it's, you know, probably the most technically advanced car in in, in the world. You know, but um, so we were discussing a few different things and... uh, I had I told him about one idea that we had, um, which is I, I can't really go into detail. But um, and then you know to share that and you know he had some more information sent over a you know a paper on on that and uh, uh, get deeper into it, understand on on a on a deeper level on you know some some weird stuff <laughs> so that you can figure out how you can make a better product in the future. For me, that's the most interesting thing. But uh, we have. I think that's quite deep in our core, you know, the company to to be focused on those things. That's why we cannot resist, you know, when we make a chain tension or a foot peg to find a new way of, of doing that better than what was done before. And it's super interesting. And uh, I mean, we our focus as a company is um, really technology design and sourcing. So these are the three areas where we want to understand. So sourcing can also be very interesting in understanding technology, like how can you produce a better product in a reasonable cost you know because maybe you can 3d print the whole bike in titanium and it's going to cost you 10 million uh, it's going to be 20 percent lighter but it's going to be 10 million so, it's, so if you can also yeah. learn you know production technologies uh, so that you can make it um, a great product but also as a reasonable cost i mean that that's when it becomes truly interesting i think you know to get both aspects of that yeah, I've heard uh, I heard a, a podcast with Elon Musk and he was talking about basically how he approaches all of his products, whether it's cars or rockets or whatever, is basically what is the raw material cost? If you add up, you've got these cubic centimeters or inches of this material on the bike and then you've got this, you know, of titanium of this type of alloy of this type what is the cheapest you could possibly buy those raw materials and then he basically says that's the cheapest version of this motorcycle or car that we could make and then he's basically working backwards from that and then it just becomes like a scale uh, and sourcing problem yeah i mean that that's exactly what we do as well i mean if you look at the bike the raw material cost is maybe a little bit more than 500 euro that's crazy to think so it's so so and, and but it's the same for all products so the the cost yeah. is uh uh yeah you know refining those materials into components uh, so um that's where you need to start so if you look at you know and it's also that makes it so much easier to understand how you can make better products because then you have someone you know, producing a brake cylinder in 4,000 series aluminium, which is like the, the shittiest grade of aluminium you can find. And the cost for aluminium 
is now maybe for that grade maybe two and a half euro per kilo or something like that and then you look at okay but what's the cost for 7000 series aluminium which is the highest grade well maybe that's four to five euro so it's double the cost but that's per kilo you're not using that much weight to make mm. that break it's cylinder. negligible yeah and if you, yeah and, and also if you use a higher grade you reduce the amount of material you use so, mm. so it's not. It doesn't have to. It's not going to be double the raw material cost, which is still negligible, right? Um, but it's it's going to be it's going to be less than that. So if you're looking at, okay, let's say um, uh, subframe in aluminium. Yeah, normally, a subframe is one kilo. Uh, the raw material cost in a cheap aluminium is two and a half euro. Raw material cost in an expensive is five. That's two and a half euros in difference. And the properties are more than twice as good in the higher grade. So it means you can make it significantly lighter. And so the production cost doesn't have to be more, or you know, the difference is so small. Yeah. So yeah. if you're focusing yeah, and I guess the, how you can produce it in the right way. And people, yeah, like if you're just looking at it from like the spreadsheet perspective of how many kilos, oh, we can cut half the cost by going to here, but you're not taking into consideration like all of these other variables. Like if you really get into like more of a meta analysis, then you can see that you actually can build a better, twice as better product for, you know, pennies on the dollar yeah. more. Yeah, absolutely. Could we take a, sh- uh, a bathroom break? Is that possible? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're almost done. We've almost done three hours. So yeah, okay. go to the bathroom okay, and then okay. we'll, we'll wrap her up. Perfect. Sounds good. I'll be back. No worries. No worries. I was once in a poker game in uh, St. Martin uh, and I was like 18 years old and I went in with like 20 bucks and this is like a huge casino and I won up to 150 and you know, for me at the time, I was like, wow, I made a hundred dollars. That's incredible. You know? <laughs> but then... I had to pee so badly <laughs> that and, and I was too afraid to ask, you know, can I leave the table? Because I didn't know. And I spoke English, but you yeah. know, I was like a young guy. So uh, I I just lost the money <laughs> because I got too stressed. <laughs> like, so I just, I had to get out of here. <laughs> oh, that's so funny. How, uh, how long have you been speaking English for? Um... I mean, since I was very young. I mean, in Sweden, uh, everyone speaks English. Um, yeah. We were. I was. I remember when I was a kid. My father used to speak English to me when he picked me up at kindergarten. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so right. I had to learn. I had to learn early. But yeah. you know, it's also a big difference with Sweden versus other European countries that we don't do voiceover. So all the movies are in English, etc. Uh, so you yeah. learn a lot through that. And in, you know, Germany, yeah, Italy, right. Spain, France, it's all voiceover. So they, they never hear English. Um, so it's, that yeah, makes a big okay. difference, I believe. Yeah, because that's one of the things, I guess, like starting the, the Euro studio, like I was wondering with the, you know, like obviously there's a language barrier to an extent, <laughs> even, you know, most people do speak, uh, you know, English over there. But I mean, to a point, it's not your native native language. So I mean, it's always going to be that little bit harder. Yeah, no, for me, I mean, I'm 
I may, I maybe I'm not so good, but I'm equally bad in Swedish. So for me, it makes no, no difference. Really. <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah, not 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 saying that your English hasn't been bad. I just thought of more in general, you know, like uh, just doing the studio. I'm like, I wonder if this will be a, a challenge. But I mean, yeah, like we've done three hours extremely easily. So I, uh, yeah. I, we definitely got through a bunch of a bunch of stuff and i mean i'm just i'm super excited i think for me you know it gives me something to talk about that's that's one thing but as a fan of the as a fan of the sport as a fan of technology um you know to to see it going forward and and the way that that you guys are pushing and i just i'm i've been on board from the start you know like just seeing everything that that came out i think that on every level that you could kind of like analyze the company from what I've seen so far and the conversations we've had, I just, I think you guys are really doing it right. And, and it's a, a real chance. Like I never really got the sense with Alta that this is going to be the one that changes everything, you know? Um, and I think it was like, I was like, Oh, cool. Like that's, that's pretty rad. I definitely would like one of those bikes, but it wasn't an industry changing kind of, uh, feeling that I had and you know this since since day one I'm like fuck this could actually be the one that that does it because someone has to do it exactly it has to happen eventually so uh, I think it's gonna happen now <clears throat> and, and but it's really you know interesting what? going back That's to the <clears throat> oh sorry keep going I just was just thinking about um, what you mentioned with the raw materials and I mean we are very much thinking the same because the processing of different materials, of course, you need to look at, you know, how can you minimize the processing cost? But that's also, you can look at how cheap you can produce a product, but it also allows you to make a better product without increasing the cost so much more. Like titanium, I don't understand why we're not using more titanium in motocross bikes. It makes so much sense. It's just, I think there's a misconception that titanium breaks easily. Uh, but it depends on you know using the right alloy, the right grade of titanium. So, for instance, titanium grade five, which you know just you know simply spoken is like the best grade uh, titanium. The raw material cost is forty to fifty euros per kilo. So, if you would build a hundred kilo bike, that's four to five thousand euro in raw material cost. So let's say that all the processing would stay the same and obviously that's not the case, but if we could replace all the materials with titanium, we would only increase the production cost four or 5,000, which is not yeah, true yeah. because we, because it's also lighter. You know, you would reduce the cost, uh, the, the weight. So it wouldn't wouldn't be 100 kilo, it would be less. Now, of course, we can't, you can only replace, you can't replace oil, but you know, steel is basically a one-to-one -one replacement. Then, you cannot produce titanium in all forms, but uh, you know it has a tremendous, tremendous advantages. Uh, so it would make a lot of sense, for sure. But sorry, I was yeah. interrupting you. You said something else. No, well, technically, I was interrupting <laughs> you. I was going towards the, the next next thing. I actually can't remember uh, what I was going to ask, but yeah, I mean, I think it, it it's pretty cool to. I think it's just cool for the general population within the sport to just have access to these kind of conversations, you know, like I can't have, I mean, I, I personally feel quite close to KTM um, in the sense that, I mean, I ride those bikes, I own those bikes, at least I'm quite 
close with Leesky and he was the guy that run them here and, and he was kind of the face. And then you look at the, they, KTM and Austria, they feel kind of attainable for the average guy more so than like the Japanese manufacturers. But I mean, I've never had a conversation with, you know, someone that's this deep in, in that world over there. And I, I think it's a, I think it's just a, honestly like a cool unique thing for the industry to go through to like have these levels of conversations where it's like yeah we we should be using more of this and you know this is the way that that we we are thinking and this is the way that other people uh are thinking in in manufacturing and i don't know it just feels like we're kind of getting access to something that we've never really had that much access to before when it comes to stark who do you think will make the next electric bike Surely it's KTM. You think so? Well, they've got the free I mean, ride. You, I mean, I don't know if they. They, they I don't know if they still now. do it. Yeah, they okay. just stopped it. Isn't it? Oh, so it is, it is done. I wonder. I think. Um. I think Yamaha has something with. I think there's like a battery company or like a power unit company that's like partnered with Yamaha and then they're using like Yamaha chassis with and kind of doing like a retrofitting. So I don't know <laughs> the level of involvement that Yamaha has with that. And then I think that Honda's producing one. They've got like one that they've kind of had under wraps in, in Japan. So I feel like right, it's sort of... Oh, Okay. It's not Honda. It's well, I mean, it's connected to Honda, but it's a completely separate company. They only do prototypes, I think. Yeah. Okay. Sure. What's yeah. your feeling on the future of it? No, I'm just a bit curious, actually, because um, I mean, KTM, they have clearly said that they don't believe in electric technology. Uh, really? Uh, yeah. I mean, um, their CEO had a statement, in, I think one month ago, saying that it was in German. I don't speak German, but someone told me that the direct translation is like e-mobility is bullshit. Uh, <laughs> so it <laughs> doesn't seem to be so keen on electric technology. Um, so I'm way off base. And, I mean, in their annual report that they sent out, or quarterly, quarterly perhaps, they're showing like a future plan where there's some sort of new free ride coming out but it's a low power vehicle uh it's more like a bicycle without pedals it seems yeah okay um so i don't i mean they might change their strategy i think if i mean clearly the ktm group's ambition is to be market leader that's they are market leader yeah. today uh so our ambition is to become market leader if we succeed with that by using electric technology probably at some point they will uh, uh, follow but uh, you know you have to see I don't know the um, Japanese the Yamaha project is a completely separate company here in Holland or Belgium can't remember that is just uh, buying the chassis I believe so I don't think Yamaha is involved yeah okay Mugen yeah I mean it's connected to Honda but it's not Honda I don't know really it's kind of interesting to see maybe it's Maybe it's not one of the existing ones. Maybe it's an, another company coming out. But I, I hope there will be more bikes. Yeah, and I mean, I, I think that it's cool to even be like open to that competition too because 
I think that that's sort of what it's gonna take is like multiple companies kind of pushing because yeah market share is going to be the thing that dictates the direction that all companies have to go in yeah yeah but i mean they're all commercially driven so i mean it's going to be similar as the car industry i believe you know tesla started in 2003 and the big automobile companies they started developing electric cars what maybe four years ago five years ago like seriously so it took Mm. them 15 years i i think it's probably going to be faster but um you know they will probably start at some point yeah so i guess to close it off uh is there anything that we haven't touched on i think we've definitely uh we've covered a a bunch of different topics um hopefully that there's not uh, anything that i've kind of missed or or left out but um yeah no i think we have covered the most topics it's been a super interesting uh, conversation and uh it's going to be very fun to see what the future will bring and how how the market will i think it's clear from a consumer perspective that this is a very interesting product it's you know yeah. makes a lot of sense we will see how fast racing will integrate it it seems it's working incredibly fast so um, i mean if there's any other federation listening to this call you know please reach out to us if you want to if you have any you know questions about electric technology or you know and, and so on because there are thousands of customers all over the world that will have these bikes and they will want to race. So, you know, I think it's good to start working on adapting the rules um, now. Um, and it's it's happening in many, many countries already. Yeah. So, um, no, I don't know if there's anything else, really. I think that's, we have covered a lot of areas. It's going to be nice yeah, to well, I, uh, see your first impression of riding the bike. Yeah, I, I'm. Yeah, I'm super, super excited. Um, yeah, to get over there. Also, I'm keen to talk to Sebastian as well. Obviously, talk to to Josh quite extensively about it. And um, yeah, I mean, it, I'm interested to see how this does too. I think that the, there's a real thirst for information um, around the bike, and I've definitely tried to do my best to bring as much info as you know or like get as much info as i could to hopefully answer most people's uh questions that they have had but i mean yeah it's something that anytime we post videos about it um it's gone crazy with views and comments so i think that yeah people are really uh people are really interested and i was thinking before i before we um i come in here to do this with you i was watching everything again and I was just thinking about, I was like, fuck man, like I'm probably going to be loading up one of these things in my bike, in my truck in the next 12 months and all my trucks that I ride on a gas powered bike, like I'm probably not going to be doing that as much. And I'm probably, I'm probably going to be picking that bike over all. And I mean, I've got like six, like six motocross bikes. Like I love bikes and uh, I love building them. I love tinkering. I love all of it. I'm probably not going to ride those bikes that much once this thing is in my <laughs> shed at some point, you know, and it, it feels far away, but it's not, it's literally here. I mean, it's probably within 12 months and, and that to me, like it, you know, you take away everything else that to me feels crazy that it's like, this is actually right here. And then, you know, to be riding one in a couple months, I think is going to be, yeah, it's just snuck up on everybody and it's it's right here before us. 
yeah, it's happening incredibly fast. I think it's the it's the fastest transition of any vehicle category to electric, as far as I'm aware. Because we were yeah on December twelfth, the electric penetration of motocross was zero percent, and yeah. this is you know if you look back since then till now, this is the best selling motocross bike in the world. Yeah, yeah, by unit so for that, sure. That, that, so that's uh, it's gonna happen very fast, and a year from now, you know, every track you go to, you're gonna see these bikes yeah so was there this is something i was going to actually ask when we were kind of talking before but have there been moments in this whole deal where you have just been insanely fucking stressed and just like really tripping on what you got yourself into yeah (laughs) absolutely yeah i I couldn't uh, saturday i we were going uh we're going went for a ride motocross i couldn't ride it wasn't possible couldn't focus too i was too fucked up <laughs> yeah too really yeah it was not possible so uh, i i just and, and uh, went out a few it? laps but i i almost crashed what's the issue a lot <laughs> issues that so we, what's the <laughs> yeah like what's what's in your head that's like got you that fucked up you know it's that where you have an in- super focus on something uh, but you have it every single minute for 15 hours per day for a number of days you know eventually your brain you know you run out of capacity so you just need to recover so i needed to recover mm. for uh, you know one or two days now i feel fantastic again but uh, saturday i was completely smashed i was couldn't speak <laughs> couldn't ride a motorcycle <laughs> but uh yeah, that's that's how it is. <laughs> that's when you need to go out yeah, and take I mean, a cold bath. You feel better. Yeah, yeah. No, I get it. I mean, I I honestly can't. Like, I mean, I'm dealing with my own business and whatever, and I I probably it's on my mind a similar amount of time. But just the stakes are nowhere near as high. Like, I just can't. I can't imagine you know doing doing what you're doing with the the stakes that you're kind of playing this game at. It must be a pretty pretty gnarly experience to go through and one that not that many people would be able to appreciate i'm sure but you know i like i don't see that like it's a pretty straightforward path from where we are you know it's it's a huge challenge but it's very straightforward so it's like okay you have this mountain to climb so we're tall but this is the way we're going we know it's you know where to go it's just yeah it's gonna burn our legs for sure but you know <laughs> yeah, yeah. we know the path <laughs> so i think yeah it would be fun nah sweet well i appreciate it man and uh couldn't think of a better first podcast to do in the the new european setup so i really appreciate you took a flight to get here and you stayed the night and and did the whole deal so uh i'm personally just appreciative and humbled that you'd uh that you do that for for our show um and yeah i hope that we can talk more i hope that this feels like a a place where you guys can come um and talk about whatever it is that you guys have i'll always have uh, an open door for you guys just purely in the interest of wanting to support the future um so yeah you guys will always have me as a, a ally going forward in that uh in that respect so um yeah anything that i can do to help out definitely reach out thanks man really really appreciate it and thank you for inviting me to come here it's uh 
been a lot of fun and uh, yeah, I appreciate you bringing up this subject so that people can hear more about uh, Electric Future. I'm looking forward to see you soon no. in Barcelona. Yeah, no, I'm excited. I've never been to Barcelona, so I'm uh, pretty pretty excited just to do that. I'm definitely not keen for the flight from Australia, but we'll make it happen. <laughs> Sounds good. Cool. Thank you very much.